When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate. Very excited, folks, and want to let you know if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral platform focused on hosting debates on science, religion, and politics, and doing it in a way that is, as I had mentioned, fully neutral. And so we have no positions here at the channel itself. It's just we want to have the speakers come, make their case, and then you, the audience, can decide who you find more persuasive or who knows, maybe it'll be a tie for the first time. I don't know. But very excited. We really do want to let you know, no matter what walk of life you're from, we really hope you feel welcome here. And so with that, I am going to give you a quick layout of the format, and then I'm going to ask if the speakers can give a brief introduction as well as share about what you can find at their links in the description, which are already there if you want to check them out. And so for that format, it's going to be pretty short and sweet, pretty simple, basically roughly 15 minutes if the speakers need it for their opening statements, followed by 60 minutes of open dialogue, and then about 30 minutes of Q&A. So if you have a question, feel free to fire it into the old live chat. We'll get through as many as we can, but no promises as we do want to respect the debater's time as well. So with that, want to say thanks so much to our guests. We really do appreciate you guys being here. And so we'll start with Ben, who is on the left side of your screen, folks. And so, Ben, thrilled to have you back. It's been quite a while. And so if you'd like to share what people can find at your link as well as about yourself, thanks for being here with us. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to come on to the program. It's uh, it's been wonderful to get to talk with Matt a little here in the sort of the pre-debate uh, conversation and getting to know you. Uh, you can find information about my ministry at benfisherministries.com. And in particular, if you're a skeptic who has questions about epistemology, and, and as well as some of the things that I'll be presenting tonight, you can just visit me online at howtodefeatskepticism.com. And I uh, would love to be able to connect you with some of our other resources that our ministry has to offer. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ben. Pleasure is all ours. And so we'll kick it over to Matt. Glad to have you back, Matt. I think it was back in August, maybe, when we last had you. So it's a bit chillier now, at least here in Colorado. So thrilled to have you back. If you'd like to share about your link, up to you, as well as about yourself. Thanks so much for being back with us. Sure. Yeah. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad things uh, worked out. I noticed you have the, the YouTube link to my personal account, which is going to be for the Atheist Debates Project. I'm Matt Dillahunty. I am the host for the past 15-ish years of the Atheist Experience, a live call-in show, um, sponsored by the Atheist Community of Austin. Uh, I am a two-time president of the organization, not that that matters at all. And in addition to hosting The Atheist Experience, I also host a show on the Line Network called The Hangup, where because I'm not working for a nonprofit, I get to be um, as 
I don't know, political and outrageous as I might want to be where I can't when I'm actually working for a nonprofit. So I'm, I'm glad we got uh, tech issues sorted and, and I'm thrilled to be here uh, to have a conversation with Ben, who, I mean, literally I knew nothing about until we got into the, like the pre-show, but we had a little quick back and forth and I'm looking forward to seeing how this goes and trying to have a, a good conversation about, is there really good evidence for God? Absolutely. I'm optimistic. I think this is going to be a great conversation. And so with that, we will get the ball rolling. I've got the timer set for you, Ben, and the floor is all yours for your opening statement. Okay. Okay. Well, I first want to start out by saying that I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to come on to the program this evening. So thanks to Modern Day Debate for folding me into their schedule. And as well as special thanks to Matt Dillahunte for being part of tonight's discussion. I'm certainly looking forward to a robust exchange of ideas. Now, in our debate, I'm going to be making two main contentions. Number one, that philosophical and therefore religious skepticism is now a soundly defeated argument within secular academia. And that number two, theism has a number of strong arguments in its favor. So I'm looking forward to presenting both arguments to tonight and offering various reasons in their defense. But for my opening statement, I'm going to be explaining why religious skepticism is now a soundly refuted argument, as this will add strength to my later arguments for God's existence in our open discussion time. So let's first begin by setting the stage on what caused the problem of skepticism to first become such an issue within Western civilization to begin with. Skepticism essentially broke onto the scene of Western history at a time when ancient Greek philosophers were starting to become prolific at asking questions. Questions like, how do we know anything? Can we know anything? And if we can know anything, what is the method for knowing it? While other questions were asked, which were aimed at even more fundamental issues, such as what is knowledge to begin with? Is it something that we can define? And if we can define it, what are the necessary characteristics of it? Well, amid the sea of swirling questions, there were two main inquiries which emerged that drew the most attention from early Greek philosophers. And they were, one, what is knowledge? And two, how do we get it? Now, the first question was considered for some centuries to have been decisively answered by the early Greek philosopher Plato, who held that knowledge contained three essential ingredients to it, truth, proof, and belief, truth, proof, and belief. And so it seems that for Plato, there simply had to be something more to knowledge than a person's mere belief that something was true, joined together with the fact that he was actually right. Instead, there needed to be some sort of proof or justification for that belief. And so thus, according to Plato, justification was the needed ingredient to properly bracket truth and belief together under knowledge. And for centuries, most philosophers just thought that Plato was right. Almost no one questioned his views. But in 1963, there was an American philosopher by the name of Edmund Gettier who published a brief paper which seemed to challenge Plato's classical definition of knowledge. Using a set of counterexamples, Gettier was able to demonstrate that Plato's definition had really been incomplete all along. Instead, it was possible, said Gettier, for a person to believe something which was true and to have a reasonable justification for that belief without that belief necessarily counting as knowledge. And the result of Gettier's paper was a tremendous upheaval amongst modern philosophers to identify what had been missing from Plato's classical definition. <laughs> Precisely what was it? Was it warrant? Was it vindication? Was it something else no one had ever thought of before? No one was able to say. Now, of course, the reason why this was such a problem for modern philosophers is that unless we could have a working definition for knowledge, we could have no assurance on how to get it. And so it's therefore a somewhat comical joke of Western academia that today no one has ever offered a convincing reply to Edmund Gettier, 
So in response to our first question, no, modern philosophers don't really know how to define knowledge. So then what about the second question? Well, the second question is, how do we get knowledge? Now, for most of us, this is probably the more relevant issue by far to tonight's discussion. How do we decide, for example, that we really know that God exists? Is there some sort of a rational way to settle a question like that? Well, classically, skeptics have argued, again, probably due to Plato's influence, that it's impossible for human beings to know anything. Now, while the mere mention of that idea tends to elicit roaring laughter from some people, this is nevertheless a belief which has historically been immensely successful. The reason is that it seems to be based on a principle which virtually all philosophers agree is true called the closure principle. And the closure principle essentially states that in the case of any pair of opposing claims, if we know that one is true, we also know the other is false. And so for this reason, the skeptic's argument winds up looking surprisingly good as we go about the business of simply minding our P's and Q's. Observe, if I know that P is true, I also know that Q is false. I cannot know that Q is false. Therefore, I cannot know that P is true. Now, notice that we're already beginning to see here the very core inspiration for religious skepticism taking shape. So if you don't see it yourself, simply watch what happens when we restate the argument like this. If I know that Christianity is true, I know Hinduism is false. I can't know Hinduism is false. Therefore, I cannot know that Christianity is true. And so for this reason, we can see that skeptics do not succeed in defending their views if they insist on arguing that religious skepticism is somehow very different from philosophical skepticism. Uh, obviously, that's not true. The two arguments derive from precisely one and the same basic classical form. Well, moving on, the argument of skepticism has obviously been enormously powerful throughout its time. Almost no one in history has ever been able to soundly refute it. But through an unexpected series of events, probably triggered mostly by Edmund Gettier, the chief premise of the argument was actually brought into question. And this occurred as another American philosopher by the name of Robert Nozick said about trying to repair Plato's original definition of knowledge. And what happened next inadvertently became the basis for refuting skepticism. So here's how Nozick did it. First, let's look at the most vivid example of skepticism which has ever been conceived. It's a story film depiction of the now infamous brain in the vat argument. Uh, the movie was released in 1999 by the famous film director duo, the Wachowski brothers, and it later went on to become their biggest smash hit. The film was entitled The Matrix, and it told the story of a man who was suddenly unplugged from a computer, only to discover that up until the present time, his entire life had been nothing but a dream. Well, the film portrays the struggles of the character named Neo to adjust to the world as it actually is. His life lived as a brain in a vat had deceived him regarding the true nature of his existence. Sentient machines had cleverly wired his cerebrum to stimulate his brain to accept his false experiences. And of course, this only raised the question for most moviegoers, how can we be certain that the Matrix does not exist? Hmm. Well, naturally, few of us tended to be detained by the matrix question for very long. Uh, most of us probably dealt with it by shrugging our shoulders and simply having a sandwich. But for Nozick, stories like the matrix proved an extremely invaluable point, namely that the argument of skepticism is baseless. Now, to see why Nozick thought that, try imagining the following fanciful scenario. What would have happened if the machines themselves had decided to tell Neo that his body lay invaded in a tube of biodegradable goop? That's, of course, assuming that machines can decide to do anything. Well, getting back to the point, if this had happened, Neo would immediately be in a position to know that the real world lay somewhere beyond his current empirical borders, correct? But the question which naturally follows is, does this count as knowledge? The problem was that under Plato's classical definition, it did. 
In fact, this point becomes all too easy for us to see as we simply reconsider Plato's original criterion for knowledge alongside the present case under discussion. Consider, number one, belief. Plato said we need belief to have knowledge. Well, did Neo believe the machine? By supposition, we're saying he did. Number two, truth. We need to have truth to have knowledge. Well, was the machine story true? Yes, Neo was plugged into a computer. Three, justification. Was Neo's belief justified? <laughs> well, the machine was the one who told him. But the question which remained is, does that count as knowledge? Does it? Well, our hesitation to answer yes, said Nozick, was a sign that something was wrong here. Recall here that Gettier had argued previously that something was missing from Plato's classical definition of knowledge. Scenarios like this one seemed to show that Gettier was right, but that wasn't all that they seemed to show. Instead, they also purportedly pointed to the need for a new criterion for knowledge. In other words, they seem to show that the canonical rule, if P not Q, is not a reliable method. For Neil could readily affirm that he was in the matrix, that's P, as well as deny the claim that his senses were not deceiving him, that's Q. The problem was that Neil's awareness of this wasn't due to his personally sensing it. Therefore, the rule, if P not Q, cannot be trusted, supposedly to lead us to knowledge. Now, at this point, it's probably important for us to note how profoundly similar this is to some of the most common gripes against religious belief. For the atheist says to the Christian, you don't really know that all the other religions in the world are false, so how can you claim to know that Christianity is true? Well, to this, the simple Christian replies, oh, yes, but God told me Christianity is true. Therefore, all religions must be false. Without belaboring the point, notice how similar this is to the very case we just cited from the Matrix. Consider, in the Christian's case, the Holy Spirit tells the Christian that his faith is true. That's P. While in the Matrix case, the computer tells a Neo that he is sleeping in the Matrix. P. Next, on the basis of this, the Christian concludes that all other faiths are false. That's not Q. While in the Matrix case, Neo concludes that his senses are deceiving him. Once again, not Q. Now, in both examples, notice that the test subject has failed to personally sense his knowledge of P. Instead, he's merely been told that P is true. Therefore, even if it is the case that P is true and therefore Q is false, we've nevertheless failed to close the subject's knowledge of P to further questioning. Instead, we've allegedly discovered that P is now unknowable. Unfortunately, this argument has actually aroused deep suspicion from most modern philosophers, for the argument leads to the immediate implosure of the closure principle, if P, then Q. Because of this, the majority of contemporary epistemologists have concluded that Robert Nozick had committed a critical error. By claiming that our knowledge of P must be personally sensed, Nozick had accidentally eviscerated the closure principle. And the result of this mistake was that it made it impossible to claim that Q could somehow be implied from P. Instead, Nozick had shown that our knowledge of P must be acquired sensitively. Without intending to do so, Nozick had actually undermined the primitive logical basis for evidence of almost any kind, because without the closure principle, our logical basis for legal evidence, philosophical evidence, and even scientific evidence becomes destroyed. Now, because of this, most modern philosophers reject Nozick's arguments. Our knowledge of P does not need to be sensitively acquired. Instead, philosophers agree that Nozick's sensitivity requirement is simply false. Therefore, the argument of religious skepticism has been dismantled. So with this in mind, let's view the religious skeptics model argument and see for ourselves how this begins to affect things. If I know that Christianity is true, I know all the religions are false. I can't know all other religions are false. Therefore, I can't know that Christianity is true. Now, as we consider that argument, it's obvious the entire abstraction turns on the second premise. 
In other words, premise two is the central premise which directly determines the outcome for the skeptic's argument. The question is, is it really true that we can't know that all other religions in the world are false? Well, skeptics who answer yes usually insist the reason we can't know this, that all other religions are false, is because we're not in a position to personally sense it. For example, consider we can't see spiritual things. These sorts of realities are simply not empirically beholden to us. Therefore, we can't know that all religions in the world are false, or so the skeptic claims. But the problem is that we've just seen that making sensitivity a requirement for knowledge causes the rule of P not Q if this not this to fail to lead us to knowledge. Therefore, by defending the second premise of his argument in this way, the skeptic has actually imploded the first premise, which is just simply an instantiation of the closer principle, which brings about the destruction of the argument itself, making it invalid. So at this point, if you can't see why this is significant, um, you're probably just not paying close enough attention. And the reason is that virtually all arguments from religious skepticism tacitly assume that Nozick's sensitivity requirement is a necessary requirement for religious knowledge. So to see how encompassing at this point really is, let me take my final two minutes to uh, follow up on a few other arguments that are like this. Consider this additional argument on Bible certainty. If I know the Bible is reliable, I know that Constantine never destroyed early editions. I cannot know that Constantine never destroyed early editions. Therefore, I cannot know that the Bible is reliable. Now, atheists often view Emperor Constantine as the one who founded the Catholic Church by forcing its bishops into theological agreement. And it's sometimes alleged that one of the ways that he did this was by burning early editions of the Bible that differed from his theological vision for the church. Sadly, this argument is still widely talked about across the atheist internet, from my understanding. But the problem with this is that the second premise of the argument plainly assumes Nozick's sensitivity requirement, once again, as a necessary condition for religious knowledge. Think about it. Can we sensibly, that is by use of our senses, know that Constantine never burned early editions of the Bible? Of course not. And why not? Because our belief that Constantine didn't do this isn't empirically verifiable. But by making this a requirement for knowing the Bible is reliable, this actually implodes the first premise in the argument, if P not Q, if this not this, which also invalidates the conclusion. Therefore, the very basis of the argument is undermined and the conclusion vanquished. Presto. One more argument. If I know that Jesus was bodily raised, I know that natural explanations to Easter are false. I cannot know that all natural explanations to Easter are false. Therefore, I cannot know that Jesus was bodily raised. Now, atheists often claim that the resurrection of Jesus is naturally explainable. Maybe the Romans tossed the body of Jesus into a mass grave. Maybe the disciples stole the body, or maybe even one of a hundred other natural possibilities shows why the body went missing. But because the evidence for the case can't be empirically accessed, we cannot sensibly falsify these numerous counter-explanations, and so therefore we can't know that Jesus was raised. I take it the argument sounds familiar to most of us. But the problem is that, once again, that the second premise of the argument plainly assumes Nozick's sensitivity requirement as a necessary condition for knowledge. Once again, think about it. Can we sensibly, that is by use of our senses, test every naturalistic alternative? Of course not. And why not? Because we can't empirically access the past, which means that the Christian's belief that these naturalistic alternatives are unsatisfactory isn't sensitive. But by making this a requirement for knowing Jesus was bodily raised, the first premise in the argument, if P not Q, is once again invalidated. Therefore, the very basis of the argument is destroyed and the argument vanquished. So we see, therefore, that we have three very good reasons, these three models, to show that religious skepticism doesn't work. So with that, I'll go ahead and hand the mic over to our moderator to go ahead and take the show from here. Thanks again for having me.
Thank you very much, Ben, for that opening statement. We will kick it over to Matt for his opening. Thanks so much, Matt, as well, for being here, and the floor is all yours. I need to unmute. How you doing? Uh, I'm going to set my uh, my little timer here just because uh, I'm kind of free-flowing here. And I'll start <laughs> by saying, that. normally, when we talk about presenting an argument or evidence, there's some structure to the argument and there's evidence behind it. And while we're not actually having a uh, an actual uh, rebuttal period, uh, to my understanding, it's just going to be 50 minutes of openings and then 60 minutes of discussion. I'm going to freeform my opening and include just a little bit of uh, rebuttal, which is that uh, I tried very hard and listened to as carefully as I could, and I heard nothing at all in Ben's opening that presented any evidence for the existence of God, good or otherwise. In fact, it seemed to be a dissertation Are on sure? problems with justified true belief uh, which mm -hmm. I have problems with as well. So, I mean, it would, might have been nice if we would have just agreed from the outset that, hey, I don't use justified true belief as my definition of knowledge because of various problems. Might have saved some time, but there's a bunch of objections about religious skepticism, but nothing at all about modern scientific skepticism, which I happen to also apply uh, to religion. So showing that religious skepticism isn't sufficient, which I'm not sure that he did, is irrelevant. Religious skepticism could be complete garbage as an epistemology, and literally nothing Ben said goes anywhere close to evidence for a god. As a matter of fact, after after potentially strawmanning religious skepticism or, or my position, uh, which isn't what he talked about, uh, we got in the final two minutes some notes on what atheists might say about Constantine enforcing belief, and none of those things are evidence for existence of God. And so when I'm talking about this, and it's a really difficult thing because people are generally, when they're talking about how do we know what we know, uh, I'm more interested in why do we believe what we believe? Are our beliefs warranted? I don't care if they rise to the level where somebody calls them knowledge. Um, for me, knowledge generally is a belief held to such a high degree of confidence that it would be worldview altering to find that it's wrong, but I don't care about that because we're not here to debate, do we know that a God exists or do we know that no God exists? What we're asking is, is there a justified evidence-based belief that a God exists? And I haven't seen it. When I take a look at what evidence we might consider, if there's good evidence, first of all, I would argue, and this is a really bad argument, I'm saying it's a bad argument at the outset, if there was good evidence for God, I would know. And I don't say that in any sort of arrogance about who I am or anything else. Yes, I've been doing this for 15 years and I've spent the bulk of my life studying it and I've done countless debates with people and I've had people present arguments and evidence. What I'm saying is if in fact there were good evidence for God, we would all know that this would be Noah Prize worthy. This would be in the news. Hell, the news reports things that they don't even have good evidence for. Certainly if we had good evidence for something, this would be uh, newsworthy. It, there would be no more debates. And yet the truth is we live in a world where we can't get people to agree on things that are actually factual and determined uh, and, and, and demonstrable, I mean, like facts about climate change. Do we know all of it? No, but there are some people who pretend that this isn't even happening. What about evolution? Evolution is an observable, demonstrable fact the theory by which we would explain evolution is a, a scientific theory, uh, a model. We can talk about the efficacies of vaccines, uh, how they actually do work and how they don't cause autism. We can't even necessarily convince people that the earth isn't flat and that their experiences that they think uh, are real with regard to ghosts and aliens probably are not, that merely their personal experience or their interpretation of events aren't necessarily justified. There are things that we know 
there are things that we believe and have strong evidence for, and then there are other things. Now, good evidence can, in fact, lead to a false conclusion. For the longest time, we had good evidence that the sun orbited the Earth. We know now that that's not wrong. Did that evidence stop being good? Actually, I'd argue that what happened is that evidence that we would use to reach that conclusion was found to still be good evidence, just incomplete. We didn't have a complete model, and new information turned it on its head. And until we got better evidence, it was reasonable to conclude that the sun went around the Earth, even though it wasn't true. You can have a reasonably justified belief that's independent of whether it's true. And I'd like, you know, since we spent the entire opening kind of trashing a version of skepticism that isn't mine and talking about problems with knowledge that isn't relevant to this, I'd really like to find out, is there good evidence for a God, for the, for the existence of God? And if there is, what is that evidence? Because just saying, ah, well, you can't justify knowledge is irrelevant. I don't care about knowledge. I'm not claiming about knowledge. I don't even, I don't, wouldn't even expect Ben to say he knows that there's a God. He might know. But what I would expect him to say is that he believes this and that he has good reason for it. And what is the good reason? I don't know. So when we gather the available facts for the thing that you're trying to explain, and you look at the explanation, the best explanations tend to fit all or as many of the facts as possible and doesn't permit multiple competing explanations with similar uh, conflicting positions. So like if your methodology, if your epistemology, if your test methodology for a question can result in good evidence for gods, universe creating pixies, and magic, then you haven't got a methodology that distills things down to the most probable truth here. It, it, it's, not, it's not that you're, in that case, your evidence may be decent, but your, your methodology for assessing it is not particularly good. And this is one thing people will try to say all the time. It's like, oh, well, you know, talking to Matt is like, you know, you're never going to convince him because he's closed. Well, the truth is I'm as open-minded as anybody that I've ever met about pretty much anything, provided you can actually present evidence for it. The problem is that what some people think is good evidence for a proposition, I don't. And so now you can just say, well, you know, that's just your opinion. And it's all just your opinion. The problem is that with... It only seems to be with claims towards the supernatural and the God and gods that, that we can't demonstrate, that aren't falsifiable, as he acknowledged, and, and we can't test. This is the place where people come and say, well, you're a skeptic. You've just set the bar way too high for God. How could I possibly set the bar way too high for the existence of the single most important entity, in fact, that could possibly exist? How could, how could my bar be set too high? Because... I, I set a really high bar for a girlfriend. Fortunately, she loves me and we interact and I've met her. And you want to tell me that, not you necessarily, Ben, I'm kind of speaking generally, but sure. theists want to tell me that there is a God and he loves me. And yet I see no evidence of this. I have done all the things I used to believe. I've done the things that uh, people tell me to do and I've, I've tried. And so all I can do is get to the point where I, that if in fact there is a God, I have no way of knowing it. Because the arguments that theists give me are things like, look at the trees, or how do, you, how do you ground morality without a god? Well, who said that there was a grounding for morality in the first place? It's not, it's not me. All of the arguments for the existence of God that have been presented and argued and debated for thousands of years are flawed. The flaws get pointed out, and the theologians go say, well, we know there's a god, so let's massage this argument and come back with a different version of it. Today, though, I don't even know, and this is, I'm not faulting Ben, I've never met Ben, he seems really nice. 
But today, though, we didn't get an argument for the existence of God. We didn't get an argument for the evidence for God, which was what I thought we were here to discuss. Instead, we just got, hey, religious skepticism fails to warrant knowledge. And, um, you know, atheists will say things like Constantine forced religion on people. Well, so what? what? What is the actual evidence for God? We're looking at things to try to figure out what's the whole picture. Imagine you're putting together a jigsaw puzzle. It's a proper thousand piece, 5,000 piece, whatever it is. And you pick up two pieces and your first instinct is that these two pieces seem to fit together. They're a pretty good fit. The, the colors seem to line up. The, the pattern seems to line up. It's probably reasonable to assume that these two go together. But for anybody who's done a jigsaw puzzle, with a few exceptions, any, any sizable jigsaw puzzle, you're all, you all know that eventually you're going to get to a point where it's like you put two pieces together that really didn't quite go together. But the more pieces you put to the puzzle, the more obvious and easier it becomes to put the final pieces in because there are fewer and fewer options with each and every step. And when the, it's only when the entirety of the picture is there that you truly can say, yes, this puzzle is done and done correctly. But at 50%, you can still say, I'm, I'm completely confident or 90% confident about this. And I have a reasonable understanding of this portion of it. It's, it's not an all or nothing thing. So we have observations, we gather facts, we build a model, we test the model. Is it falsifiable? Is it replicatable? And this represents the best we can do to try to come up with a tentative, evidence-based understanding of reality. What counts as good evidence, though? What, not just what counts as evidence. We can take all the little pieces of the puzzle, all the bits of information that we're trying to explain. What we're, the, the facts that we're trying to explain are not the evidence. So the, there's a fact, which is a change in allele frequency over time, that evolution as a, as a factual observation occurs, things change. Then the question then becomes, hey, do they change enough to warrant, uh, to, to uh, support speciation? And yes, we see evidence for that. And we start to try and, well, what is the explanation for this? What's the best way to describe this? And for the longest time, we may not know, and we may not have a complete model, but what we need to do is if you have a model that is actually the explanation for the observations, it needs to account for all the facts. It needs to be testable, replicatable, falsifiable. That's, that's science. And, and before Ben or anybody else tries to say, well, Matt's advocating for scientism. Uh, yeah, I pretty much am, uh, but not necessarily in the way that so many people think so. I'm just at the position that I want to believe as many true things and as few false things as possible. And that means I must have in place the mechanisms that mean I'm most likely to get it right and least likely to get it wrong. It would be an interesting exercise, and maybe this is what we should do instead of a debate at a future time, for Ben and I to list 100 things we believe in and ensuring that 50 of them are things we're almost, uh, we're reasonably confident that, our, that the other person also believes, and that 50 of them are at least dubious. You know, maybe we don't need 100, but... Uh, that might be way too much work for either one of us. But if we could list 10 things where there's five things that I'm really confident Ben and I both believes, and there's five things that I believe that I think he may not, and then look at our processes for reaching the, the conclusion that we are confident in those beliefs, not that we're no, not that we have knowledge, not that we are certain. I don't think you can be absolutely certain about anything, but to talk about how and why we came to believe those positions and to present the evidence for those positions where we disagree. What I find curious is that anytime I've attempted to do this, it's only things like astrology, psychics, lucky socks, where people are saying, ah, these things are real, despite the fact that we don't have good evidence that they are. 
And they would look at it and say, oh, I read my horoscope in the newspaper today. Clearly, astrology has something to it because that was really impactful for me. When they don't understand that one of the things that we need to do is get away from your personal interpretation and understanding of what your experiences are. While you are the best one to decide whether or not you're hungry right now, you may not be the best one to decide that the experience that you have is best attributed to the divine or to aliens or whatever the explanation is. That explanation needs more. And so if the evidence for God is tends to be anecdotal, unverifiable, in conflict with other beliefs, that's a problem. If it's a hearsay account that doesn't give us the possibility of, of investigating it, um, when we're deciding, like, you know, if you talk to a district attorney, whether or not they're deciding to bring a case, they're going to evaluate the evidence and they're going to decide whether or not they have enough evidence to make the case. And when it comes to something like God, not only uh, do I not think there's enough evidence to convict, I don't think there's enough evidence to even bring the case. What we have are testimonial accounts. I fully acknowledge there's anecdotal evidence uh, in the billions uh, from believers. And I'm a former believer. I used to have a Jesus hat I could put on here around a little bit to swap back and forth and, and put on my old hat. Um, I used to believe those things. And when I stopped believing, it wasn't because I got mad at God. It wasn't because I decided, ooh, I want to go sin. It wasn't for any reason other than I don't see an evidence-based valid argument for the existence of God. And as I looked around and asked, nobody could give me one. And as I run around doing more and more debates with people, it has yet to materialize. And today, and again, no offense to Ben, we're going to have a conversation and hopefully we get to it, but there was not even an attempt. I mean, if this, no. granted, I don't care about, I don't view debates as winning. Like somebody was like, oh, did you win the debate? I don't know. I don't care. If you're looking at debates as who won, um, I think you have kind of the wrong look on this. I want to actually have the conversation. Uh, do I think I've won debate? Sure under whatever criteria somebody might have, do I think I've lost? Sure. But the important thing is, if we're going to have a debate, if this was a collegiate score debate, it would already be over because Ben didn't present positive evidence or even an argument for the actual proposition. And I don't care. And I don't want anybody in chat to go like, oh, Ben didn't show up with it. That, that's irrelevant. Ben believes something that I don't. And we're having a conversation for the rest of this time, along with questions, about why he believes and why he thinks I should believe. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe Ben does not, I, I don't want to make any assumptions, maybe he does not believe that I should be convinced for the reasons that he is. Uh, but all I can do when somebody thinks they have good evidence is to say, show me the good evidence, let's have a conversation about the good evidence, and I will tell you why I think it is good evidence or perhaps why I think it's not good evidence. And maybe that convinces some people, but as it stands right now, I don't have anything to work with. So, You got it. Thank mm -hmm. you very much. Mm -hmm. We will kick it right into open dialogue. So the floor is all yours, gentlemen. Okay. Okay. Well, Matt, I uh, I agree that we're coming at this from the standpoint, more from a discussion standpoint than a collegiate debate. Sure. Um, and so my intent, as I stated at the outset of my uh, original opening statement, was twofold. Num number one, I believe that there are not good arguments from religious skepticism to show that God doesn't exist. And number two, that I also happen to believe that there are several good arguments, and one in particular that I'll employ for this evening, to show that God does exist. And so could, could my we, opening statement merely was for the purpose of setting uh, the first point in that twofold approach. I'm wondering if we could agree that mm -hmm. it's not up to anybody to prove that there isn't a God, that it, until such time as there's a, a good justification, belief in a God isn't warranted. 
It's not like mm -hmm. it's not like you're justified in believing in God until I prove it wrong. Nobody's justified in believing anything, including a God proposition, until they have a good argument for it and evidence. And I'm willing to allow that to be the grounds for discussion, religious discussion and inquiry into the subject of God's existence uh, in the context of this discussion. So I think that uh, okay. that's a good place for us to begin. So how do we yeah. how do we start? How do we begin? Like you, you say you have one argument. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure you have many and I'm sure you have lots mm -hmm. of reasons, but you had one in particular. Uh, I, I have no idea why it wasn't presented in the opening, but I'm happy for you to present it now so that we can discuss it. Sure, sure. I think that one of the very strong arguments for the existence of God is uh, something that I refer to as the axiomatic argument for God's existence. This is very much like the ontological argument for God's existence, the argument for God from his being, but it asserts a slightly different point. The purpose of the axiomatic argument for God's existence is to show that God exists in every single world that we might conceive of to exist, and this uh, would include uh, all possible worlds that we might imagine. And as it turns out, because the concept of God, at least at the conceptual level, is entirely unraceable on strong grounds, I think, that therefore, uh, we're not in a position to airbrush a divine causal beginning to any world that we might imagine uh, for the sake of any argument, that it's just simply not rational to do so. And so uh, well, what's this the is argument? an argument that, well, the argument essentially, uh, I might refer to it as the ever pending birth, birthday. Imagine that you, Matt Dillahunte, have walked into a room only to encounter an infinite row of tumbling dominoes. Each falling tile collapses a subsequent member, causing the preceding domino to plummet towards the earth. And each successive domino takes all of one second to accomplish its inevitable collision with the floor. And now imagine that the row of dominoes is utterly beginningless, leading to a final domino standing near your foot. Bending down, you notice that the domino bears an inscription which reads the exact date of your birth. And so you then begin to wonder if the set of dominoes is infinitely long, how much time will it take for my birthday domino to, to, to collapse? And of course, the answer is unavoidable. The tile would never fall. Consequently, that would imply that you could never be born. And so this means that in any world that we imagine, none of these worlds can be eternal in the past. Some initial trigger has to set the world in motion. And so this essentially means that the initial cause that brought this world that we live in into existence, uh, any finite cause itself re requires some sort of a causal parent. And so therefore, since the cause that triggered the other causes, we, we have to inquire into what is the founding reason for this. If the reason is something which lies outside of the cause itself, then it and not the cause is the real reason why the world exists. And so the parent cause of the world necessarily causes itself to cause the other causes to be set in motion. And this seems to imply a conscious will at work in the world of really any world that we might imagine. It seems that this would apply to the world of the Swiss family Robinson as well as to the world that we're having this discussion in right now. And so because that concept is seems unerasable to me, it seems to me that we are stuck with God's existence as a matter of a sheer axiom. That is a self-evident irreducible prime that we're never justified in questioning. So okay, that's so really convinced. 
So you started by saying this was a version of the ontological argument, and I don't care what category we put it in, but everything about it, okay. for me, reads as a first cause argument and not an ontological mm -hmm. argument. That this is, it has nothing to do with necessarily the characteristics of a god, but instead um, a fictional, uh, one-directionally infinite timeline. So first of all, uh, to the extent that we know and understand time and causality, it seems to be contained within the universe that we inhabit, and that universe, by the best physics and cosmology that I'm aware of began somewhere mm -hmm. around 13.7 billion years ago and that time sure. began with that. So talking about time prior to this is already nonsensical. And so if you were to talk about something that stretched infinitely into the past, granted, you know, Carl Sagan pointed out uh, that he had an objection when somebody said, ah, if we don't stop at some point, stop asking what came before this, then we might never stop. And Carl Sagan famously was like, well, then why stop? But the thing is, um, Mm -hmm. This That's set of dominant of infinitism. Well, the thing is that yes. same infinitism exists in the Zeno's arrow paradox, which you don't have to go like, you don't have to start with my birthday and try and go back forever. All you have to do is say that one minute before I was born, there's an infinite amount of time in between that time and now that you would have to cross. And you, you would have to, in order to cross the first half a second, you'd have to cross mm -hmm. the first quarter of a second. You'd have to cross the first eighth of a second, the 16th. And this goes on, that there's an infinity between these. And here's the problem is that every time we're trying, I understand that some math, math mathematicians uh, will talk about different types of infinities, infinities they can use. But generally speaking, infinity is not a, is not a quantity. It is a concept yes. for a lack of a quantity. So when you try to construct this thing and say, well, if, if, that line of dominoes went on forever in the into the past, which I don't mm -hmm. even know how that's remotely possible because the best of science doesn't say that the past is infinite. I would agree it's not. Just just that it just that we are one directionally infinite mm -hmm. into the future um, from mm -hmm. the from the instant of the beginning. But yes. if what if what you're arguing is true, is God eternal? Well, I think that there are several things that I would like to point out, and that is that in the case of Zeno's paradox, the length of of space, the spatial extent between the one end of the stadium to the other is actually conceptually prior to our subdivisions of it into infinite segments. And so, therefore, the point is that the line itself is finite in duration, however we might divide the actual line itself. And so, yes, of course, I would admit that it's true that you can subdivide any finite space into infinite amounts. Of course, right. that's true in one sense. But, but it still uh, means but, you can't get there. So what I'm asking is, is God infinite? Is God? Well, I think that essentially does God have a beginning. Yes, it, well, and here I would admit. You, you, wait, you think God had a beginning? Well, I think that what I'm saying is, is that I would admit that if it is the case that God Himself has persisted through an infinite sequence of temporal events, that God Himself falls on the same sword. Uh, so to speak, as the universe does, or any world that we might imagine. But I don't think that that's the argument necessarily. I think that. Uh, the, the way that Christians typically think of God is existing in a sort of uh, a temporal now. If we could imagine God's thoughts uh, being uh, brought down into a room that you and I are standing in, what we discover is that those, those thoughts could not be arranged in a chronological sequence. And that's because all of God's thoughts exist to him in a present eternal now. And so God does not experience a temporal sequence of events in himself. Therefore, the problem disappears in the case of a first cause. And so, so I think that that's a pretty good response to uh, the questions that you raised. Well, I mean, the question I, the question I asked is, does God have a beginning? And you seem to say yes. 
No, no, I'm not saying that God has. Okay, a beginning. that's what confused me because you you went on you went on this thing after after I asked you know because does God have a beginning? So no, the fact that Christians, no, I'm not saying that. Sorry if it drew that impression. Well, I mean, you literally said yes, but I think you were thinking about something else, which is why I wanted to clarify it. So the fact that Christians have a particular notion of God existing outside of time, as if uh, our, our mm-hmm. timeline is just a function within God, uh, that's cool. I don't know how you'd prove it. And well, when you when you, you talk mean? about when you talk about God in the sense that God must exist in all possible worlds, I don't know how you prove that either, because t- so far, I, I have yet, I have uh, asked, I asked a couple times, Okay, I'm waiting I I for the, the actual, like, does your argument have premises and conclusion? Because I have yet to hear that, and I was want to write it down, so I address yes. your argument accurately. So what, what is it? Sure, sure, sure. Well, I would say that the proof that this is true is the fact that it's axiomatic. Okay, no, 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 no. Axioms... You, you you don't the fact that something's axiomatic does not prove that it's true. An axiom is something that you assume is true as a matter of necessity, a sort of presupposition, or something you assume is true for the sake of the argument. What I asked was, does your argument does it have a formal structure with premises and conclusion? Well, my understanding is is that uh, essentially uh, an axiomatic argument is part of a of several types of arguments that essentially issue from an argument called foundationalism. Foundationalism historically has taken on two essential forms, that of presuppositionalism and that of axiomatic arguments. Presuppositions are things that we presuppose uh, for the purposes of testing what follows, whether or not certain things follow or not. Well, axioms are things that are self-evidently true. In other words, the evidence is in the sheer pronouncement of the proposition itself. Two plus two equals four. A that's plus B not is axiomatic. equal to B plus A. That's, no, those, that's, these are the axioms of those mathematics. Are, those aren't, those aren't the are axioms. logical axioms as well. So, so the answer to my question, then, I'm going to assume, is that no, your argument does not have set premises and a conclusion for me to write down. Well, I think that I walked out uh, a, a simple illustration that demonstrates the necessity of there being an axiomatic beginning to any universe that we might possibly imagine. It doesn't matter if you're the guy who's uh, been been sort of uh, a computer has stolen your brain, disposed of all the post postcranial content, and has inserted it into a tube in the matrix. That matrix world necessarily has a first cause. Uh, every single world that we imagine has this cause, and this is therefore a matter of an axiom. It's not something that we can airbrush out of our picture of any world that we might imagine. And yeah. so it's is it is something that is uh, inescapably to be dealt with as A plus B is B is equal to B plus A, or that you and I equal two, whether we're standing in heaven, earth, or in hell. It doesn't matter. You and I equal two. So and it's asking for proof to something like that. It seems like a strange request. It seems to no. It doesn't seem a strange request at all. There's nothing strange about the request at all. So mathematics is directly derived from the foundations of logic, and it's not two plus two Mm -hmm. equals four is not an axiom. Two plus two equals four is based on axiomatic foundations of mathematics and and notions Mm -hmm. of of regularity. But those are things that are still regarded as true, but not demonstrated Mm -hmm. as true. If we could demonstrate they were true, they wouldn't be called axioms. Now, the axioms that are around that that result in two plus two equals four, those the the conclusions from those are things that we can demonstrate to consistently be reliably true. Neither one of us are going to say, "Oh, uh, one plus one equals seventy-three." Uh, we're probably not going to say that unless we have some really peculiar root-based system of math with uh, different operands. But if we're talking about normative, we're talking about <laughs> quantities. 
then that's yes. where we're at. However, to say why does one plus one equals two is something that we can actually work towards and demonstrate. The found, the, 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 just like- And I would agree with that. The fact that identity, non-contradiction, and excluded middle are presuppositions, yep. which we cannot demonstrate, but which we assume are true and appear to be uniformly absolutely true in the sense that they appear to be inviolate, and that you would have to assume they were true to try to prove they weren't true. And I don't know how, what you would have to assume in order to try to prove them false, but you'd have to come up with some way of justifying that. It's not yeah, just- and that's that precisely we, my point. That's, that's what this argument is like for God's existence, is, is that uh, it's- Except it's, that's not an argument like, for God's existence. The fact that we assume something to be true is not an argument that it is true, and it's certainly not evidence that it is true. In fact, the well, things that we- Well, it's not an argument in, in the fact, sense- Hang on. Okay. The fact that we assume something as a necessity is because we do not have good evidence for it. If we have good evidence for it, we don't need to assume it. We just demonstrate it. So if your entire case is that God is axiomatic, then you're acknowledging there is no good evidence for God, or at least there's no good evidence going to be presented for God, because if there's good evidence, we don't need to assume. I don't really think that that's true. And let me explain to you why. Because essentially my epistemology is founded upon the work of a uh, second century Greek philosopher known as Sextus Empiricus, who was an early critic of Plato's teaching. And Sextus essentially held that there were uh, only one of three possible options whenever trying to settle the contingent status of proposition, call it P, whatever it is. And essentially, those three possibilities were the argument of infinitism, the argument of coherentism, and the argument of foundationalism, of which axiomatic arguments certainly would be a, a fall under a type of foundationalism. And so if you're saying that that isn't good evidence, well, the other two possibilities aren't good evidence either. Infinitism doesn't work because say that you have proposition A, how is A proven? Well, presumably by B, how's B Uh-oh, Ben locked up. With a very, very powerful question. How do you settle ben? the contingent status ben? of Z? Well, yes. Ben, ben, you locked up for about 15, 20 seconds there. So I want to make sure you, your video is still locked up oh. and we can hear you on audio. So I want to make sure you said that because I couldn't hear what you said. You are back now. What, what was, okay. can we say it again? Okay. Yes, I was simply uh, pointing out that there were three possible ways to attempt to settle the contingent status of any proposition that we might be discussing, according to the early Greek philosopher Sextus Empiricus, who held that the first possibility was infinitism. If we're trying to say, how do we settle the contingent status of proposition A, presumably you say A is proven by B, B is proven by C, C is proven by D, and so on and so forth until you reach contingent proposition Z. But what happens when you reach Z? How do you settle the contingent status of Z? Well, the infinitist argument essentially says that you prove uh, Z on the basis of contingent proposition A1. And A1 is proven by B1, B1 is proven by C1, and so on and so forth until you read Z1. But now you've got the same problem. And it goes back and uh, basically onwards and onwards forever. That doesn't seem to prove anything. And so if you don't like door number one, where do you go? Sextus Empiricus said you go to door number two, and that's the argument of coherentism. Coherentism essentially says that we should have perhaps decided to do something different when we reached contingent proposition C. In other words, when we preach, we reach Z, we probably should have said something like, well, Z is proven by Y. But how's that different from saying that Z is proven by A? And that raises the question of whether or not circular reasoning is valid. Um, this is often where scientific discussion goes. If we wish to say, well, how do you know that's true? 
uh, to a scientist. The scientist just simply takes the warrant for the proof and tosses it back to some previous member of the set. Well, at least all the proofs are coherent with one another, and that forms a better resolution to our original inquiry into A than the idea that nothing can be proven, which is where infinitism leads you. So if neither of these two options works, well, then you've always got door number three, and that's the argument of foundationalism. Foundationalism essentially says that Z could have proven by just simply saying, well, Z is, is settled. Now, there are two historic forms that foundationalism has essentially taken. The first would be that of presuppositionalism, and the second is by axiomatic arguments. And so presuppositions are simply blindly presupposed but axioms are self-evidently true. Take uh, sexist empiricist argument, for example. Isn't it the case that it's axiomatically true that the only way to settle the contingent status of Z is by either going to A prime, Y, or Z itself, just simply saying at Z, either you go backward this way or you stay. And so that's axiomatically true. And so therefore, it is on the basis of these kinds of demonstrations that we can know whether or not something is settled in a final sense. If you're going to argue for coherentism, that doesn't work because it begs the problem of circular reasoning. And anyway, if you're going to go that direction, coherentism seems to collapse to a form of foundationalism. So the so, scientist is essentially saying, well, I foundationally believe that all of my empirical deliverances are true, um, but isn't that just a form of foundationalism? So then what's wrong with the Christian's evidence? Um, so if those are the only three live options we have in terms of what types of evidence we can choose not. from... Well, uh, certainly, uh, I would say that sexist empiricist's arguments are so persuasive that most modern philosophers have essentially said that that they're almost irresistible. Except and that to me, I find that to be true. Well, I, I, I so this is an interesting topic that I've had lots of conversations with, except it has nothing to do with whether or not there's good evidence for God. And instead of just relying on Sextus, I've actually looked into things a little bit further and more modern. I don't know if you're familiar with Susan okay. Hawk, who's come up with a, a thing that she calls foundherentism, which is an epistemology that combines principles of foundationalism with coherentism. I don't know what the yes. defeater is. I don't know what the defeater is for that. It seems to be the most consistent the view that is most consistent with the way that I go about things. However, at the end of the day, I'm a scientific skeptic. And mm -hmm. what I want is evidence. I don't want somebody to tell me God is axiomatic because clearly, like if I were to tell you no God, that the, the notion that God exists mm -hmm. is axiomatic, you would reject that. And so there must be some reason for opting for God is axiomatic. But the second you mm -hmm. do that, you're saying there isn't good evidence for God, or I'm not aware of good evidence for God, because if there is evidence for it, you don't take it as an axiom. I don't, there's evidence for DNA testing. I don't have to take it as axiomatic that DNA testing works. It is evidence-based. And if in fact there is a God, does God, let me, I'll have questions about God. Does the God that you're advocating, can that God act within the material world in a way that is detectable? I think so. I don't see why not. He's God. I don't see why not either. But if God is detectable, then you don't need mm -hmm. an axiom. What you need is evidence. So yes, what is something yeah. that God can do that we can empirically verify? Yeah, I would say that uh, miracles would be an example of this. But getting back to the sure. argument for God's existence, I think that you can easily force any sign, wonder, or miracle that you see into an infinite regress of proofs. 
Uh, no reason not to. You've got that option, or you can just simply try to argue from some other presupposed basis of coherence. It would be really great if you didn't spend nearly so much time trying to anticipate what my objection is going to be and just have the discussion. Okay, your mm -hmm. entire opening was an anticipation of what you thought a religious skeptic was going to say. It literally had nothing to do with my position or this debate at all. And now I'm asking, can God do something mm -hmm. in reality that is detectable? And you say, yes, miracles. But before I can even start to talk sure. about this, you're immediately anticipating what objections are going to be. Please identify, okay. please identify some miracle that we can reasonably attribute to a God. Well, um, you're asking for a miracle that you and I can reasonably tribute to God. I'm assuming that you want a miracle that happens right in front of us. I'd love, I'd love if for you to don't give have any example miracle, of any miracle. Because oh, okay. I, so I hear lots of claims in, about miracles. I have yet to hear about any miracle that has actually been verified. And has actually been verified. Yeah. Well, I think that the arguments for it, uh, the resurrection of Jesus are fairly The resurrection of Jesus hasn't been arguments. verified. Uh, that depends on, on what you are demanding as a reasonable grounds for verification. So, I, and I think that essentially the problem that I see is, is that uh, in many cases, and I don't know if this is the case with you, so I won't uh, sort of uh, suppose on the front end that this is the way that you see things, but many, many atheists and skeptics seem to suggest that uh, that all these arguments from history, historical are you arguments, no, are based no. on induction. I, I, I promise. And not I, I'm trying not. To, I'm trying to be as patient as I can. Please stop debating other atheists that aren't here and have the conversation with the one that's here. I'm not here to defend what other atheists believe. All I've asked is provide the evidence for a miracle, and you are now talking about what other atheists believe. How is that relevant to you providing evidence for a miracle? Sure. Well, um, I think that the, the evidence for the miracle of the resurrection is fairly strong because it's been historically substantiated, and that's good enough, it seems. Otherwise, uh, it Se seems seriously. to me— Ser now, I, I want to make sure we're clear because there's a soundbite okay. right there where I asked you for a miracle, and your statement is the evidence for the, for the resurrection— is historical and that's good enough for you. You didn't provide mm -hmm. any evidence. You just once again told me what you're convinced of. How can I, and I, I, I swear I'm not trying to be obtuse. Mm -hmm. I am here as a sure. lost soul, according to your notion. Yes. According, according to your religious view, which I don't really know particularly well, uh, I'm mm -hmm. going to guess mm -hmm. that I am desperately in need of the truth about Jesus or my soul is mm -hmm. damned to uh, elimination or hell. I don't know if you believe in a literal hell or what. And mm -hmm. yet when I ask you to provide evidence for a miracle, your answer is the resurrection is historically mm -hmm. confirmed enough to suit you. Yes. I think it's, okay. I think it's, then, then I don't be. know what we have to talk about because you're not presenting any evidence in your opening. You're not presenting any evidence in this discussion. You're just once again restating that you are in fact convinced well, of something. I haven't gotten around to How saying much? particularly what the evidence is. I, I can. We've been debating for almost certainly. an hour. The whole purpose of the debate was mm -hmm. to present evidence for God. How mm -hmm. could you possibly say I haven't gotten around to it yet? Because 
That seems oh, ridiculous. No, no, I do believe that I've gotten around to the notion that I think we have a good reason to suppose on the basis of an axiomatic demonstration that God exists. That's the topic for tonight's discussion, and that's what I've come ready to speak into. But you I haven't don't presented think... any evidence, and you're wanting to accept it axiomatically, which means that now we're not mm-hmm. even having a debate. Well, I would say that the other two uh, options that we have in the trilemma I just mentioned are unfavorable, and I think that perhaps you would say that that's true as well. The trilemma Um, you just talked about, infinitism, mm -hmm. coherentism, and foundationism, are about epistemology. They are not about a god. You have barely spoken about a God. And now when I say, where's the evidence? You say, well, there's only those three opposite, uh, three possibilities. Well, first of all, I already acknowledge well, that I don't maybe there aren't. Maybe, I don't care if you see any others. I just pointed you to Susan Hawke's foundationism. But in the end of the day, no matter which, yes. which, no matter which epistemological model you use, there's either mm-hmm. evidence for a God or there's not. And there's either mm-hmm. good evidence for a God or there's not. Are you ever planning to present good evidence for a God, which was the purpose of this debate? I think that essentially what I've come uh, into this discussion to do is to simply show that there are good reasons to believe that God exists and that I think that axiomatic demonstrations are the strongest form. Okay. Of then I have nothing more to say because have. if somebody we didn't agree on a debate of hey can I come up with a good reason to believe in a god and the only thing that I have to do is say that I'm convinced it's good the issue here here under debate was is there good mm-hmm. evidence for God if we're not yes, going to talk that about does evidence, depend on the type of evidence that you're willing it to doesn't accept. matter what evidence depends on you have to actually present it. If you're yes. not going to present evidence for the existence of God, then we should have had a debate about epistemology, which I'm happy to do. I just did a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But if I, if I would agree mm-hmm. to do a debate on epistemology, then we could discuss that. But if you're going to say, I'm going to come in and debate Matt Delaney on whether or not there's good evidence for God, and I'm not going to present any evidence, mm-hmm. good or otherwise, and I'm just going to say that it's axiomatic and that I, I don't see anything newer or more found or more uh, reliable than... Um, what a second century Greek thought about epistemology. Need. I don't know what to say. There's nothing more to need. do. My, posi- my, my job here is to point out why I either accept or reject your evidence. But if you're not going to present evidence, then we're wasting time and might as well just go, well, to, go to questions. I, this might be a, an interesting question to ask is what is the reason to suppose that an axiomatic demonstration is somehow a faulty reason or suspect reason to believe in the existence of God? Because it needs to be supported by evidence. You can't, so you could take, there's no God belief that one could propose mm-hmm. that one couldn't accept axiomatically. Mm-hmm. I could axiomatically accept Allah, Yahweh, whatever uh, model Scientology is. It doesn't even have to be a God. I could axiomatically accept any one of those. Mm-hmm. I'm concerned with whether or not there's evidence and whether or not there's good evidence. And I was told that sure. I was coming to a debate about whether or not there's good evidence. And now you're not presenting any good or otherwise and saying that it's unnecessary because it being axiomatic is enough. Now, if something's axiomatic, Seems that that's true. If, if something's axiomatic, there's no debate. Well, I, I think that uh, you would be in a position to say uh, whether or not you agree that that type of, a demonstration is good enough to persuade you, uh, Matt Dillahunte, 
for the existence of a God that since it seems that we don't have a good grounds for launching an argument which says that this isn't true, and I don't think that I've heard one, uh, then I would you say You already that- agreed. You don't get to do this. You don't get to say you haven't heard an argument against God when we already established at the outset and you agree that the burden of proof is on you. It's not up to no, me to prove there is no, no God. I think that it's best to say that in any discussion, uh, one way or the other, I do not view the uh, the, the standpoint of atheism as being something that is somehow epistemically... Moved. Well, I'm sorry. I'm defending my position. The debate mm-hmm. here is that you either have good evidence for the existence of God, which I then either acknowledge is, is good evidence, or I say it's not good evidence and here's why, but I'm not in any position where I'm required to prove that a God doesn't exist. In, in Both in real life, with the fact of me being an atheist and putting the burden of proof where it's supposed to be, mm. based on, uh, on proper epistemology... However, in this debate, the debate is, is there good evidence? Now, I'm going to ask this just one last time, and then maybe we'll just go on to questions from the audience. Are you going to present actual evidence I'm for a God? either way. I think that I have shown that there are three possibilities, okay. three I'm major done. possibilities, and I already did mention the combination of coherentism and foundationalism in my explanation. And I think I said that there are these three possibilities that we might entertain on how to establish evidence of any kind or some sort of a demonstration of any kind. I think this is a fairly good one. It seems to me that it's fairly strong. I haven't heard any good arguments against it. And so I think that because it seems to stand up the way that it does to questioning, that it's a fairly sturdy grounds for believing that God exists. Okay. Yeah. Congrats. This, but you've presented no evidence. Maybe. And well, I if think the debate that, is about good evidence, you don't just get to say it's axiomatic. That's not what evidence is. I, I think that uh, this is one form of evidence that we have to choose from. We have to choose from one of the three. And uh, we don't have any other options. Uh, so you keep so doing can, this. You're so, so obsessed. Build, you are so obsessed. Change. You are so obsessed over these three categories of epistemology, despite the fact that mm-hmm. they may or may not be exhaustive, that... It doesn't matter which Not one of those is true. Is enough to see. Wow. It doesn't matter which one of those is true, or even if there's another option or not. Whatever epistemology... I don't think that doesn't seem like there is. Am I going to um, be able to finish? I apologize. Please I, do finish. You know, I, I, I let, let you talk for a long time, and, and I got nothing. No evidence, just, hey, there's only three ways to look at knowledge. And it can't be this, and it can't be this, mm-hmm. therefore God is axiomatic. Well, first of all, that's not an argument. You've presented no argument with no structure. And in a debate about whether or not there's good evidence, you presented no evidence and just asserted it's axiomatic. So, I mean, I don't look at debates as win-lose, but this is a lose for you under all the criteria of the debate. Because I came into debate, is there good evidence for God? And you came in to say, there isn't, but it's axiomatic. Okay. Congrats. I I think that this is uh, this is a good and persuasive argument, and I th- think, as I said at the beginning, uh, as you agreed uh, in your presentation that we weren't having some sort of a formal debate. We were just two people that were talking about things that we believed, and that's essentially what I'm presenting here. I don't. Yeah, but the know topic I wasn't. Sorry, I interrupted. I apologize. Oh no, I, you you can go ahead and speak. I'm willing to. The debate wasn't 
is there a persuasive argument for God? If, if somebody had contacted me and said, Matt, we'd like you as an atheist to come in and argue that there are no persuasive arguments for God, I would have said, no, that's stupid. Of course there are persuasive arguments for God. There are persuasive mm-hmm. arguments for anything. There's a persuasive argument for the flat earth, but we know that's not true. There's a persuasive mm. argument for countless things. I care about what's truth. And truth is based, at, when we have Has demonstrable, it. identifiable truth, it is rooted in evidence supporting it, not is there a persuasive mm-hmm. argument? I can make persuasive arguments for almost anything, especially if I find exactly the right audience. But if there's good mm-hmm. evidence, that's a different story. Perhaps our discussion could be helped by your saying what counts as good evidence. I I talked uh, about what do you this. Mean? I t- well, see, I, I addressed this a little bit in my opening mm-hmm. remark about okay. what sort of evidence should be good and that should it explain the available facts entirely and that there shouldn't be exceptions for it and that it should not lead to multiple different conclusions that are that are similarly or equally justified but that i can't tell you here is the standard for good evidence for any individual claim until we've assessed the nature of that claim and then my job is someone presents evidence and i tell them either here's why that is good evidence, or here's why I don't consider that good evidence. But if my interlocutor is not going to present any evidence, then I have nothing to work with. Of the two of us, I'm the only one that actually talked about some criteria for good evidence. I hate to... Yeah, yes, so then forward. I take it that you're saying... I, oh, yes, please, our moderator. Okay. This, this might be a good chance to move into the Q&A. Otherwise, if we have maybe... I'm open to it if you guys want to have like one last back and forth in the sense of like maybe a minute or two each just to conclude do you have a strong opinion either way i'm good if there's questions i'm good for moving on to it i don't, I think honestly and this is no offense to ben i don't bear ben any will but i think we're going to sit here and keep repeating ourselves over and over again because ben's not in a position tonight to come forward with specifically good evidence in a way that could be evaluated and i'm not ready well, to this, evidence... this late in the game talked about uh, have a, an epistemology debate. Yeah, if the evidence is such that it could be, you know, forced into an infinite regress of questions, then I would say that that's bad evidence. This, this demonstration that I've given is not like this. If it is something that merely is just self-coherent with itself, but pays no attention to iterating questions, then that just seems to be coherentism, and that isn't very persuasive evidence either. So it seems coherentism that the best isn't evidence, evidence; it's an epistemology. It's like you don't know what evidence is. You say yeah, well, coherentism is epistemology isn't evi- is our philosophy of knowledge, and certainly it's it how deals we process with chains evidence. of evidence. It processes and, evidence; it's not the evidence. Mm-hmm. And you just referred to coherentism, saying it's not good evidence or it's not evidence. Yes, if if something or, or, is, or is of it. the variety of okay. coherentism, then I don't think that that's very good evidence. I, I, I don't think, think it's evidence at all, but. Okay. The argument under discussion, if it somehow is is, uh, is is playing well as a coherentist argument, if that's what it looks like, then it doesn't matter how persuasive the evidence empirically seems. It's just uh, it's going to lead to more questions. And uh, to me, that the strongest possible evidence that we could have would be axiomatic evidence. Now, on the basis of an axiom, suppose that P is an axiom and then we build P directly implies Q. Q is not an axiom, but it's rooted. It's the the anchoring uh, proposition, so to speak, is an axiom. That's a good argument. I would say that's a good argument. But I don't know 
that uh, short of something like that, we could say that the evidence for the existence of God would be good evidence. And so that's my point. I simply mention these varying, various competing epistemologies to simply show that the best type of evidence, the strongest type, uh, what we could call good evidence, would necessarily have as its anchoring proposition something that is axiomatic. I think that that would be important to our discussion. I think that it is relevant. Now, that's my opinion, and I'm certainly willing to discuss it, and I know that uh, uh, we can we can talk about it. I'm willing to, to entertain a couple more uh, questions, but if, if uh, um, Matt is, uh, f- feels f- frustrated by all of this, uh, you know, I guess I have been accused at times of asking too many questions. Well, it'd be nice if you presented slightly more answers. I mean, if we're going to have a debate about whether or not there's good evidence, to simply show up and say that it's self-evident that God exists, that's not good evidence. And for you to claim that something that's self-evidence well, is the best evidence. Because it's not why self-evident that God exists. You, and by the way, you've presented on no the, argument. You've presented no argument that God is in fact self-evident. All you've done is assert that God is self-evident. And by oh, I don't think so. I've shown on the okay. basis of the impossibility well, of I'll, an infinite regress. You haven't demonstrated that though. You haven't demonstrated the possibility of an infinite regress. The you didn't even really dig in on it. You didn't show that a God is necessary to get out of it. And we talked about time beginning with the origin of the universe. And all you want to do is then special what pleading the say, ah, but there's a God. Case. Whatever. Let's go on to questions, I guess. We can jump into questions. Want to say thanks for your questions, folks. We will try to get through every one that we can. Forgive us if we don't get through every single one, but we're going to try to move fast. Marcos Mekoyevi, let me know if I've mispronounced it, friend. Thanks so much for your super sticker. And then Clyde Sysites, thank you for your question, said, Matt, if abiogenesis was ever proven impossible to you, could you see this as proof of a creator God behind the creation of the first biological life? Um, so I don't know how you would prove that abiogenesis is impossible. Um, and it would, it would, it would need to be that the nature of that disproof or the, or showing that abiogenesis is impossible necessarily leaves only a God as an option, because the fact that you, you were somehow able to demonstrate that, uh, life can't arise from non-life, that doesn't mean that you can show that life arose from non-life by means of magic it has to be something else all of these things that want to appeal to god as if it's the only explanation left is just a failure of human uh, imagination and creativity it is ah i can't think of anything better than a god did it and science hasn't been able to show us anything better than god did it. as a matter of fact it doesn't look like this is possible and since it apparently happened it must be god that is actually a fallacious argument so no, I'm not going to be convinced as God. What will convince me of a God is actual positive evidence for the proposition. Uh, it's like if, if we found out tomorrow that evolution was completely fiction, that doesn't mean that God created life or its diversity. That is a separate proposition that needs evidence for it. I would agree that if we showed that abiogenesis is impossible, um, that it might make it seem like uh, that there's a God that's more likely. The problem is, is that to assume that you've demonstrated you have eliminated all possibilities for something like this, something like abiogenesis, 
would almost require you to be omniscient. That's not the way knowledge and understanding works. So you know what? I, these fictional scenarios, these hypothetical things of, you know, like, oh, if we lopped off somebody's head and they put their head back on and came walking in, would you say that God resurrected them? Or if the if something wrote, I am the Lord that God in the, in the, in the moon so that everybody could see it, uh, or if we could prove that abiogenesis can't happen, call me when something like that happens, because I'm not convinced that it's possible to demonstrate that abiogenesis is impossible. Gotcha. Thanks so much. And thanks for your question. This one comes from Stupid Horror Energy Strikes Again, saying, Gettier wasn't aware that you can get knowledge from falsehood. I think that's for you, Ben. And so what is the question? It sounds like a statement. So Right. So uh, with the Super Chats, you also allow like a, a, core, uh, a short comment if they want to make like an objection to it. And then we let the speaker give a response to it. So it's not per se a question, but more like a oh, objection. Oh, I see. I see. My mistake. So as I understand it, uh, get to your show that it's possible to have truth, proof, and belief and yet for that not to account as knowledge. And I would agree that our account of knowledge is presently incomplete. I think that we do minimally have to affirm that truth, proof, and belief are constituent to our definition of knowledge. I don't know what else we're supposed to add to it at this point. I think that Peter David Klein, former professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, uh, has done some recent essays inquiring into solutions, novel solutions to the Gettier problems, but there is literally so much literature conjecturing on how to resolve the Gettier objections that um, I just think that at this point, if we had a good solution, uh, we would all know about it. So at, my argument uh, essentially leaves that issue aside and just simply moves on to the secondary question, moves on from what knowledge is to how do we get it. And I think that we have to affirm that it has to have this. And what I'm saying is, is that whatever we add to this list cannot cause the implosion of the closure principle. If it implodes this, we lose our basis for science. We lose our basis for legal evidence. We lose our basis for philosophical evidence. This implies this. Um, this or this uh, uh, novel prediction implies that my hypothesis is true. That's scientific evidence. Uh, this body of legal evidence uh, proves that uh, my, uh, my 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 the defendant is innocent, etc. If things can't imply other things, then I would say that well, there's something wrong with our theory of knowledge. Got so it has to have these three things, and uh, it, ha it cannot implode the closure principle. Thanks so much. And Clyde Societes, appreciate your question, said, Matt, do near-death experiences where people speak of a world more real than here and seeing... Sorry, I, I missed part of that. Could you say it one more time? They, uh, let's see. Clyde asks, do near-death experiences where people speak of a world more real than here and seeing a God ever make you have doubt in your beliefs? No, I already have doubt in my beliefs. That, that's the thing is that, you know, somebody like Ben can talk in about religious skepticism. I'm a scientific skeptic. I'm skeptical of everything. Skepticism doesn't mean that you don't believe anything. It means that you want your internal model of reality to map to reality as best you can. So you seek out the best uh, epistemology to make sure that you aren't fooled and to make sure that you don't, you know, that you're not particularly gullible or whatever else. When we talk about near-death experiences, um, 
I don't know what the explanation is for all of them. For some of them, it seems reasonable that a brain deprived of oxygen and a terrified, you know, in, in, a, in a state where it's shutting down, when someone is recovered from that and they, their brain then says, hey, what's the best way for me to fill in this time that's missing where I can't make sense of it? And we have stories. It's not like uh, people, people tend to have the religious visions in near-death experiences that map with largely the religion that they believe in or the one that they grew up with or the one that's prominent in their culture. Just the same way that when people are abducted by aliens or claim they are abducted by aliens, they now describe a much more consistent alien than what happened in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, where aliens were big monsters or robots or whatever else. You just watch as the sci-fi changes. Eventually, you get to, you know, the gray-headed, almond-eyed, et cetera, and that becomes fairly uniform. Does that mean, because our, our the the tales that people tell of being abducted by aliens, have become so consistent now, does that mean that what they're saying is likely to be true? No, we don't have good evidence for alien abductions either. We have better evidence for alien abductions than I'd say that we do for God. And I don't think aliens are abducting anybody or coming to earth either. But the, but there's nothing about an alien abduction that necessarily violates the laws of physics or is outrageous considering the size of the universe and the things and things like the Drake equation. But yet I do not believe that people are being abducted I don't believe that people are having uh, near-death experiences um, that, in the way they describe. I think people are accurately trying to describe what they experienced as best they can. I think most people are going to do that, and I think that's how you get to near-death experiences. I think that's how you get to uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. I think that's how you get to I was abducted by aliens. There are we, we are we are flawed thinkers. We prioritize our understanding and our personal experience with that, uh, we, we, and it's not like these things are independently verified. So gotcha. Thanks so much. And Steven Steen, thanks so much for your support says James is the cure for loneliness. That's very sweet. Muppet minded. Thanks for your question said, can Ben restate his opening or best points in only one to two sentences? Sure. Sure. I'll <laughs> do the best that I can. And I'm guessing this is going to take, uh, you're going to give me about, 10 to 15 seconds or so, I think that I have shown this evening that there are two uh, two main points that I'm coming here to say. I'm coming here to say that I don't think that religious skepticism is a strong proof against God's existence. And I think that the arguments that I've given tonight, or the argument, the single one that I have given tonight is, is that axiomatic evidences of the kind that I described are very strong, certainly stronger than uh, infinitism or coherentist arguments. You got it. And thank you for your question. This one comes in from Zomboy. He said, <clears throat> I don't know what this means. Hey, Matt, are you red-pilled when it comes to female nature? Uh, let's see. Am I red-pilled if it comes to female nature? Um I'm pretty sure that's the men's rights advocates, men going their own way, anti-feminist douche nozzles. And no, I'm actually still in touch with reality and think that women are people um, and should be considered equal. So sorry you're not getting any, but next question. Gotcha. And the next up, thanks for your question. This one comes from Cystic to Strong. Says, if everything has a cause and God caused the universe, who caused God? Doesn't somewhere down the line something have to come from nothing? 
Well, I don't think it's true that we should uh, feel that we're forced into affirming the spurious notion that something can come from nothing. Uh, something always comes from something. And so it seems that we're therefore stuck with that point. And, and how do we best explain this while also obviating the obvious problem of an infinite regresses of some things? I think the best way to do that is to start with a cause, capital C, which is endowed with some sort of conscious freedom so that it, and not some other cause outside of itself, causes the other causes to be set in motion. That seems to be the best way to deal with the philosophical problems which we become presented with in regards to that question. Gotcha. All right. Thanks for your question. This one comes in from... Brandon Ardeline says, how do philosophical arguments for God's existence not also apply to Ra, Marduk, Ahura, Maz Mazda, Krishna, Zeus, Odin, Pangu, and I can't pronounce this last one, but I think you get the idea. Yes. Um, so I, I assume that that's directed toward me. I think so. Or is it directed toward... Matt, or do you would would you like to take that, Matt, or do you? Think, how do you want to handle it? I think they're definitely. I think they're trying to argue that it, granting your argument does it not open the door to all of these other gods being just as reasonable to believe in. Yes, well, I I certainly would concur that the uh, the argument that I have given is not necessarily to a unique. Christian God, this is just sort of a basic theistic argument, which would get you deism. Uh, it would certainly get you uh, any of the classical monothe monotheistic views. I do think that if we're talking about uh, sort of uh, beings endowed with uh, free will that interact with uh, one another, that seems to uh, and, and interact with one another in order to produce the universe— um, then that seems to sort of fall on the sword of Occam's razor. So I think that's how I would answer that objection. Gotcha. And thanks for your question. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because so, so I wasn't laughing at Ben. I want to, I want to clear that up. Um, so first of all, I, I do think the question was to you. And I want to point out that there was a reason that I didn't ask, answer, ask this question ah. or bring it up or raise anything like it. Because Ben wasn't here to necessarily defend a specific deity or a specific Christian God. The subject of the debate was, is there good evidence for God? I would love if there had been decent evidence or a discussion God. about evidence. I would have loved to, to maybe got on to what Ben specifically believes and whether or not there's good reason for that. Uh, but somebody in chat, just because I've been engaging with chat, because I, you know, trying to do oh, you can things. see that. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, I respond to somebody in chat. And of course, somebody immediately suggests that you see how Matt answers chat. Have you ever seen anybody else do that? That's a sign of insecurity. And I'm like, yeah, pull the other one. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I tried to interact on multiple levels because I came for a debate about one topic, which never came to fruition. So I'm listening to the questions. I'm responding to this. And I wanted to make sure that some people in chat got some love, too. Um, but you know what? We can keep going. Your, your chat, by the way, is a toxic cesspool of people that I largely would never interact with. It's embarrassingly bad. Uh, but I realize that's not your fault. 
it uh, <laughs> we do have some unsavory characters that's for sure i did address yes. the... they're really obsessed with with me i'm waiting for them to call me a cuck and a soy boy oh wait somebody just asked me if i like soy there we go go ahead i'm sorry james <laughs> i was having fun um so sorry <laughs> well we have we have uh <laughs> next up we appreciate your oh gosh it's, it's from the I think this is the same person who I just hid in the chat. We've just had too many trouble, uh, too much trouble from Sunflower. Uh, Sunflower, I am not going to read your question. It's just, I saw what you said in Discord. And so it's like, man, I really do, folks. We want to ask you. We don't ask for much. We're pretty easygoing in terms of like what, you know, we don't, we're, we're very easygoing about what people say. But at some point, it's like you're pushing too far. And so... Next up, Zulu Zelt, thanks for your, or uh, Zulu Zeet, thanks for your question. Said, I feel like God could put this issue to bed super easily compared to the effort of universe creation and such like. Oh, I'm not sure who that's for though. Let's see. I think that would be for Ben. And and you broke up so, for a second, so so I didn't hear it. But if Ben's ready to go, that's fine. I, yeah, just go ahead and read the chat one more time and I'll do the sure. best that I can to respond. I think they're saying like, hey, if God can create the universe, why couldn't he? I, I think that they're maybe saying like show himself, but they, but I might be wrong. They say, I feel like God could put this issue to bed super easily compared to the effort of universe creation and such like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, uh, and I think that uh, it seems to me that we do have lots of uh, testimonial evidence to the uh, accounts of miracles that have occurred in persons' lives, and all of that is certainly uh, open for us to see. Uh, I think that if we do, getting back to um, some of what I discussed, if we are going to say that the only kind of proof that we're going to admit for the existence of God has to respect Nozick sensitivity requirement. Then once again, we've imploded the closure principle, and that represents too large an epistemic leap for me to commit to, only to prove atheism, since it results in the implosion of legal evidence, scientific evidence, and philosophical evidence. You've got to have a closure principle. So therefore, I'm quite willing to welcome anecdotal evidence if the testimony seems reasonably sound, uh, if uh, and that's of course to some sort of um, a miracle that someone has experienced. Gotcha. And thanks for your question. This one's from Pilgrim, who said, "When is Ben actually even going to attempt to provide good evidence for God and stop trying tying up the discussion in epistemology?" I think we've kind of gotten your your response to that already. If you want to respond, you can. But otherwise. Well, I, I just simply respond by asking the questioner, uh, of the three options, which basically I think most epistemologists agree that they're, they're this, this list that Sextus Empiricus came up with is almost irresistible. And so we've got to have a form of evidence that's going to be robust enough to resist infinitism or coherentism such that it can be settled in a foundationally axiomatic point. Gotcha. And uh, I think that this presents that. Yeah. Gotcha. And this question from Ryuzinski. Thanks for yours. This is more of a, a compliment. Thanks for your kind words. He said, thanks to modern day debate and uh, 
for Matt and the Atheist Experience, helping me understand skepticism and epistemology, and Ben was a really pleasant fellow. So we uh, appreciate that positivity. Yeah. That's nice. Thank you. That's so nice, because I like Ben, and I would like to have more conversation with Ben. It's just that today, wh to. whatever the topic was, we don't wouldn't seem to get there. But Yeah. Respond to my friend request on Facebook. I'd love to stay in touch and just personal contact. You know, whether we don't need to have debates, we can have discussion, and I'd love to do that radical and want to say absolutely folks we couldn't agree more basically no matter what walk of life you're from atheist christian agnostic one of the many strange creatures in between we do really hope you feel welcome and so this <laughs> next question comes from uh hell soy says hmm mm -hmm. uh thank you for that and then we uh did have Working backwards, you had a recent one from Germania. More positivity, appreciate it. Said, I just want to say I love Matt Dillahunty. Very kind of you. And then Jeff Soul said, Steel Man. Good luck with that one, Matt. Well done, Mr. Dillahunty and James. You rock. Let's see. You. Let's see. Maybe a skeptic. The one you nodded and said mm-hmm to. Was that somebody just flirting with you and you didn't want to read it out loud? No, no. <laughs> I'm just they, trying they, to judge by your face what they said. <laughs> uh, they really said, mm-hmm, and I, I just was oh, trying okay. to figure out what it meant. So you, you were being literal. I appreciate it. But uh, Farron Salas, thanks for your question. They asked for Ben, rather than discuss a trilemma on epistemology, it seems like the trilemma should have focused on, in all caps, evidence. Yes, I think that <laughs> what I've shown is that there are uh, evidences which will be arguments which will cohere to one of those three possibilities. And I've right. shown that my demonstration coheres to the axiomatic uh, foundationalist viewpoint. Gotcha. And, so, and what's strange is just for the record, I would recommend everybody go look up foundherentism, which is Susan Hawke's attempt to combine elements of coherentism and foundationalism. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that uh, I'm a philosophical expert in epistemology uh, with the ability to actually assess this and say that it's better. I found it compelling as yet another option. I don't know for sure if, well, I don't even think that, that claiming God is axiomatic is viewed as in an argument or evidence under any of those, but it's, it's at least worth looking into for those people who are interested. If you're legitimately interested in epistemology and you're looking at things like infinitism, foundationalism, coherentism, don't overlook something that's newer than second century. Uh, it may or may not be correct, but it can at least encourage uh, additional thoughts on how we how we justify things. But the, the epistemology is independent from what the actual evidence is. The epistemology may, may help Absolutely. us determine whether or not Absolutely. the evidence is good. Well, I'm, I'm glad we agree. But if that's mm -hmm. the case, then uh, anyway, go ahead. Next up, thanks for your question. Rumpley Depew says, I don't know what any of these mean, uh, says what advice- <laughs> Probably not a good idea to read it then. No, no, no. The <laughs> Maybe names, I should like, look, look things, along here too. <laughs> the names a lot of the time, I don't know if it's like some sort of innuendo, but uh, <laughs> so they said, what advice, Ben, would you give to- Atheists that use arguments such as an all-powerful uh, God or can an all-powerful God create a rock that that God cannot lift? Yeah, this is uh, this is kind of like, you know, can there be, a, a, you know, a married bachelor? Can he create a square circle? I think that these sorts of uh, 
logically self-contradictory things are, are obviously uh, they, 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 we, we can't produce this. I and mean, let's face it, Mel Gibson can put a picture on a screen using special effects of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. He can't put a picture of a square circle up there. And frankly, neither could God. Gotcha. Right. And thank you for your question. This one. Hey, comes... we agree. Ben and I agree on it on several <laughs> things, but we agree on that one for sure. Thank you, Robert <laughs> Luscombe, for your question or a statement. A critic of philosophy says philosophy is a tool for people who can't argue. I have a feeling uh, neither of oh, you agree with that. I, I, I think oh, that's no, one of the I stupidest things I've heard today. And I had uh, <laughs> arguments on Twitter with people. So. <laughs> gotcha. So you, you guys, uh, again, uh, finding common ground. And then uh, let's see. Mark Reed, thanks for your question, said, Ben, is there any belief? that you could not support with your axiom argument if any argument could be supported or any conclusion then why does it support yours in particular very good question um so i think that why don't you actually just read it one more time because something dawned on me i have a thought on this when you're done by the way they said is there sure. any belief that you could not support with your axiom argument if any belief could be supported then why does it support yours yeah the answer is no the, the that's that that was what dawned to me initially no um all of my christian arguments are going to proceed from some anchoring proposition to my evidence chains and that anchoring proposition i'm insisting that it be an axiomatic argument in order to count as strong evidence for the existence of God per the request for tonight's debate. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and I, well, I pretty much agree. So first of all, I would never say that everything could be axiomatic. And I don't think Ben said that the problem, no, no. the problem that, uh, that I have with Ben saying, uh, which may be in the reason that the, that the person asked this question is that because Ben is debating a very, very, very non-specific deity. It could be deism. It could be Christianity. So he's he's saying just these bare minimum qualities are axiomatic, and those qualities are consistent with this God and this God and this God. He just happens to believe, well, not just just happens, but he believes in the Christian God. But that's not the specific proposition that he's defending this evening. You got it. And thank you very much for your question. This one comes in from Marcos Mikovi. Thank you. Said much love and respect, James. I think you're the Zen master. <laughs> I appreciate that. I That's because he's just napping through the, the, the whole the beginning of all these. James it's, just. <laughs> it's, it's peaceful, uh, ironically. And then language and programming. Thanks for your question. Said Agrippa's trilemma is undefeated. Skepticism wins. Yes, I, and I pointed out that I don't think that that is the case because, uh, yes, it is true that the trilemma, according to Sextus Empiricus, resolves in the notion that neither of these three alternatives is good. It's, it's all irresolvable. Uh, but I would say that that is not the case because we have to admit minimally that uh, it seems to be axiomatically true that in order to prove contingent proposition A, you either do that by Z, A prime, or Y. I don't know which one of these three uh, is you're going to name other than that, other than to maybe to say that you could prove Z by saying that it's dependent not on Y, but on A, but that just simply begs the question of whether circular reasoning is valid. Gotcha. And, so it seems, and this is why, for me, the discussion about 
epistemologies was a kind of a distraction, especially if you have this, which is what I tried to get to, especially if you have a God that can, in fact, interact with reality in detectable ways. Because mm -hmm. so, first of all, if God can't manifest in reality in some detectable way, then that God's existence is indistinguishable from its non-existence. If there is no manifestation in reality, then from our perspective, because we're stuck in reality, and we don't have the ability to peer outside of reality for any sort of verification, that God's existence is indistinguishable from its non-existence. And so anybody who believes in a God that they think does not manifest in a detectable way in reality, and I'm happy to see that Ben isn't one of them, but anybody who does believe in that is saying, I believe in a God that isn't testable, falsifiable, that isn't capable of providing me any evidence for its existence in an epistemic sense. God. And so you must be talking about a God that manifests in reality. Otherwise, you're claiming to detect the undetectable. And if you can detect a God that manifests in reality, then now it's now an empirical question of please show which things are God manifesting and how we can identify that the actual explanation for this thing that we're calling a manifestation is God. That connection between observation and cause for or explanation for that observation is the key to all of this. And yet that's the thing that's missing. And it's the thing I was coming here for was the evidence that, that connects. Hey, yeah. I, I've observed and this in reality and the best explanation for it is God. And here's why. Give yeah, and short, let me say that I think that, short that response, Ben, and then we must go to the next one. Okay. In that case, let's move on. Gotcha. Thanks for your, and then uh, Bruce Wayne, thanks for your question, said, I have good evidence for the non-existence of any gods. It's the axiom that gods do not exist, Q-E-D. I don't know what Q-E-D means, though. Q-E-D, it means that proves it. Oh. Ben, we'll give you a chance to respond if you want, if you feel like you've already addressed a variation of it. Well, uh, I would simply suggest that unless you could show that there was something wrong with uh, the presentation I gave, which was a demonstration that God in his existence, that, that he is his axiomatically present in any world that we imagine. Well, unless you could show that that was somehow wrong, I don't see, it seems to me that we're just stuck with the notion that he does. If he okay. can't be conceptually erased, then it seems to me that we're stuck with him. Alex Gross, thanks for your question, said, why would the strongest argument for God be an esoteric appeal to a personally assumed set of epistemological claims? Is God trying to hide from us? It's an interesting question, and it, I, I assume that one is for me. <laughs> since I, well, I, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty well known for the argument from divine hiddenness as an actual argument against the existence of God, and so that's probably why somebody's asking it probably why it was brought up yeah and certainly the biblical authors themselves seem to ask that very question lord uh why hidest thou thy face from me and i think that that is one of the strongest uh existential reasons that people rally to the fore to refute the existence of god but it doesn't seem to me that it has a philosophical rub. It seems to me that it has a more of an existential rub. And that's why I don't find that I am singularly persuaded by this notion. It isn't powerful enough in that sense to overcome the conviction that results from the realization that God's existence may be axiomatically demonstrated. 
Thank you very much. And Harley Quinn, thanks for your question, said, standards of evidence must be shared to be meaningful, relevant to the discussion. Agreed. And then say they say standards exclusive to Matt would be meaningless to both parties. It's it's independent verifiability that gives arguments warrant or belief. And then they continue, if Matt was somehow being dismissive, which he isn't, it would nevertheless stand separately from the lack of sufficient evidence for God claims. Yeah, this is why I put together, I, I said an interesting experiment would be to like list 10 things. Five of them I think we both believe in. Five of Ben's should be things that he and he thinks we both agree with. And then the other five should be things that we suspect the other person disagrees with. And then when we talk about the evidence that convinced us of the first five, assuming we get it right, compare that to the nature, the quality, quantity, nature, and assessment of the evidence for the other five things. And the one whose worldview is the most consistently applying evidence and evaluation of evidence, the one that is less likely to be engaged in special pleading, the one who doesn't violate Occam's razor by not multiplying entities unnecessarily and claiming that, you know, God is an axiom when this is something that we should be able to, to demonstrate and not have to assume it axiomatically, I would argue that that is the better epistemology in practice, irrespective of any philosophical notion, that, that, that a, a, a worldview consistently applied, where you're not like, oh, I'll accept this evidence except for that. Or uh, I'm, because one of the problems, especially if you start defending generic God notions or very generic God concepts, is that now you still have within that overarching category of God, a bunch of distant options, and they are mutually cons uh, exclusive and contradictory. I mean, you can't have both Allah in the Muslim sense and Yahweh in the Jew Jewish sense um, be correct and true. Only one of those two, if either, could be correct. And so this is how we're going to try to drill down. And I'm like I said, I'm not attacking Ben for this because Ben came to defend it particularly. This, this would be the starting point. Like if we can show there is a God and we get to agree on that, then we start working out what kind of, which God is probably the right one. So I'm not, I'm not faulting Ben for that, but it's, it's a, a really difficult situation to say, ah, well, yes, there's good evidence. And it's because I don't know. I'm now I'm harping on it again. We'll go on to whatever question. I don't need to repeat my objections. You got it. Thanks for your, this one is a question from, oh, I lost my spot. Uh, this one, I, Maynard Saves, thanks for your question, said, James, James, would you debate Matt on this exact topic? If given the opportunity, that would be juicy. I haven't debated in a long time, maybe someday. And thanks for your question from Dildo Baggins. <laughs> Glad <laughs> to see you. Says, uh, I know what that one means. It says, did you screen these interlocutors? That's just an inside joke because we one time Darth Dawkins, who I think, Matt, you know, um, Darth Dawkins. I think he's called the show. I don't know all that much. Despite what people think, I don't hang out with and, and worry about every little YouTuber out there. Um, <laughs> I think he's called the show. I think he's no longer allowed to call. I don't know. Yeah, we, we've had a run-in with him as well. <laughs> so that's an inside joke about Darth. Uh, Johnny Moe, thanks for your question, said, question for Ben, is there anything that would convince you that God doesn't exist or probably doesn't exist? If so, specifically, what would it take? You know, I've thought about that question a lot. And a lot of my conclusions came out of a, a season of personal wrestling as I shared with Matt 
prior to coming live on Modern Day Debate, that I'd encountered a season of profound existential crisis and that all of the tenets of my faith were brought into question in that short season. And as I resolved how I was going to leave that season or not, I reasoned that I wasn't simply going to allow myself to read the Bible alone, but that if I couldn't find a defeater for the problem of religious skepticism, that I was going to essentially probably cash in my faith, or at least um, I, I, would, I would have just had to relinquish it on a rational basis. At this point, the reason I'm a Christian is because I feel that these arguments are so strong that I cannot resist the notion that atheism is false, that, that because I haven't seen a good argument from propositional atheism to convince me that it's true, the argument of evil, etc. And then the other variety, which is just simply lacktheism, Paul Draper refers to this as psychological atheism, there doesn't seem to be a good argument even for psychological atheism. Sure there is. That is the state of being. Sure uh, there is. The the, the argument uh, the argument for well, it is they, they all depend on skepticism. And again, this is an, an argument which is now over the past 40 years been collapsed in secular academia. It's it's weird. So first of all, what you've done and what you've just completely described, I, I would love to to go through it in detail at some point when we're not in this, is you basically shifted the burden of proof to is there a is there a good reason to think people could disprove God? And then when you found what you think is a problem or a defeater for a particular notion that you're calling religious skepticism without looking at actual skepticism, you're like, ah, oh, I don't, I think the two are share precisely the same canonical form. You know, it just, well, well, they don't, but we or, could, or we could say, we could say charitably, we could say that what about the problem of underdeterminism? But there again, the reason for the underdeterminism becomes the admission to, uh, essentially assent to Nozick's sensitivity requirement. Again, the closure principle collapses, and I just can't rationally make that sort of an epistemic commitment, give up philosophical, legal, scientific evidence just to argue that I've got a good reason to psychologically doubt. Well, or to, or to philosophically, I'm doubt. sorry, but that's that's the way reality goes. See, the thing is, the time to believe something is after there's evidence for it. The time to believe something is not after you've failed to find a defeater for the opposition. We'll, give you the last well again, the evidence for me, the, the, the strong evidence, the strong evidence winds up being something that must be axiomatic. If it isn't that strong, I'm not going to believe it. I don't think axioms aren't evidence. Let's go on we'll get... the next one. Sheepwork, yeah. thanks for your question, said, to both of our guests, wouldn't a plant-based diet be problematic for evolution since we've eaten meat for, one, for hundreds of thousands of years and science shows it's still harming us? <laughs> I love steak. <laughs> Would, wouldn't I don't know what else to say. This person seems to suggest that wouldn't a plant-based diet be harmful for us? Yeah. Is, is that I, how the question started? I think that, well, in particular, they say wouldn't a plant How much did this person pay to ask such an irrelevant question? Let's see, $5. US I'd refund that just because clearly they need $5 to go out and figure out what the – like I might, I might push back on Ben a little bit for, for skipping past the subject of this debate – but somebody who donates five dollars to ask about a plant-based diet in a debate about good evidence for God, when we didn't even get anything more than an axiom, 
I'd give them their five bucks back. Matter of fact, uh, if you want me to uh, have them mail, send me a message, uh, no, screw it. I was going to personally refund their $5, but I think they probably deserve to lose it. So <laughs> next up, okay. thanks for wasting it. Uh, let's see. I, I don't fully understand it. I'm sorry. Sheeper. I'm a vegan. I need to tell somebody right now. If I don't tell somebody right now, my head will literally explode. That's exactly what that was. <laughs> Matt, Matt Wilson thinks your question said, Ben, the fifth axiom of geometry seems arbitrary, but if you remove it, you end up with completely different geometry. If you assume God as an axiom, you can also test by assuming no God. Nothing changes unlike geometry. Well, I would just simply say then, then how do we resolve the problem of the infinite regressive causes? I don't think there have been any persuasive arguments I've ever heard for this notion, except for a grand cause, capital C, that, that sets the other causes in motion. So um, that was a strong argument for me. I think that the reason that it's not strong evidence for Matt might be due to what I sometimes have referred to as I've lectured on this point. It, it, it has something to do with what I call the rule of independence, which is the notion that you need something other than the thing itself to demonstrate uh, that you have evidence for the thing. And I, I, of course, do not think that that's the case. I think things can be self-evident. The word evident is in there. It's evidence and evident are cognates. So I think that that might be the difference is See, that for, oh, for Matt, I think he, he views um, and I, I, I understand that I can certainly relate to that. I personally struggle with that notion myself, but I came to believe through my the process of my own introspection that um, that, that was not the only option, that there were the other, these other two options, and the, the one that seemed the strongest was an axiomatic basis for believing a proposition. Gotcha. And I, sure... and Oh, sorry. Go ahead. We have a, let's, we, I hate to rush. It's just that we have a, a good amount yet. Uh, Josiah Bradbury, thanks for your question, said, Ben, <laughs> you said, quote, if there was a good argument, we'd all know it. And oh, why I... why not apply that to this, the same to God? So that's for me. So if there was a good argument, we'd all know it. I I think that didn't didn't Matt say that? Yeah, that's what well, I actually. We thinking. both said so. I said at the beginning that if there was a good argument, I would know about it, and then I went on to explain it. And then curiously, a little later on, you said almost the exact same thing, and that you would know about it. And I think that's what they're asking. Oh, I can't remember the context or what it was. Perhaps if I were able to rewind the video, huh. I could more adequately address it. I just can't remember. If it comes to mind, we I apologize. Come back to it. The no person, problem. if I could refund them their money, I. <laughs> We, if it, we, maybe it'll come back up. And RT66Drone says, to both, shouldn't belief be proportional to the amount and quality of supporting evidence? There is no yes. infinite regress necessary in proportional belief or science. Correct. Oh, and so I'm as, as a humist, one of my favorite things that Hume ever said is the wise man proportions his belief to the evidence. Or your confidence level in something should be proportional to the evidence for it. And so if there's mountains of evidence for it, that's something you should be really confident about, uh, but never absolutely certain. And the other thing from Hume, of course, is that you reject the greater miracle. Hume does not say accept the lesser miracle. He specifically says reject the greater miracle. And that ties in with the notion of falsification and burden of proof and all that stuff. But yeah, your confidence should be proportional to the evidence. And if you're taking something as axiomatic, uh, 
axiomatic is, is the notion that the thing is evidence of itself. I don't know how you, anybody could ever say God is axiomatic without showing God. That you give me the demonstration of God, and I would agree, it is now axiomatic that that demonstration that there is a God. When you when you say we have an axiom that you know uh, this quantity plus this quantity results in this quantity, that is demonstrable. I can take um, I can take one rubber band and a second rubber band and show that when I put them together, I have two rubber bands. It's not just an axiom. Uh, this notion of addition, it is something that is practically demonstrable as well. And when you start taking things as axiomatic that have no demonstration in reality, um, I, I don't, I, I, yeah. I find demonstration, I, I would, I would, demonstration is the, the practical example of a proposition being likely true. It is the I'm going to show you the thing that I assert. And, so, and for example, uh, I'm going to demonstrate pulling my finger off. Now, obviously, we know that can't happen in reality, but I just provided a demonstration of it. And so the question is, is that good evidence I can pull my finger off? No, we have evidence for other things as well. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, and I would say that when it comes to axioms or like laws of logic or things like this, that here we don't need a single operational instance of these working anywhere in the universe to believe that the, that the proposition under discussion or the law of logic or you know, at laws of axioms of math, et cetera, must be true. I, I don't think that they're dependent upon any em, empirical operational instance of them to be true. Gotcha. So that might be a difference between the two of us as well. Thanks so much. And this one comes in from Brian F says, God has promises like draw near to God and God will draw near to you. In my history of knowing mm. God, it's a hundred percent true. Can you relate to this Ben? And then they say M N T oh Minnesota tins, Twin Cities I think they're saying oh this this might actually be one of my students and yes for me this was the censure this is that I found that experientially the presence of God was with me in the midst of my doubt and this also was extremely confirming to everything. So once I, I, I came to see that there were really no good philosophical reasons to doubt the existence of God, the persistence of the Holy Spirit's presence with me just overwhelmed me. And I found that this was a tremendous confirming point. All of these <laughs> discussions aside, they're very complex, especially for those that per perhaps consider themselves maybe... Um, you know, novices to the subject matter. Um, I can un certainly understand that this just seems overly complex. And uh, perhaps that's to my own fault. I, I just simply asked a lot of questions as I went through my own experience with this. But for me personally, this was a tremendous reason for continuing to rest in the staying power of God in the midst of my life through the worst trial that I'd ever suffered. It really was the worst. Gotcha. Thanks so much. And Talison Oberlander says, James, you didn't screen my interlocutors again. It's another Darth Dawkins reference. Jay, thanks for your question. Said, this isn't a question for either participant, but I love this channel and thank you for doing what you do. Also, I like this Matt guy. <laughs> thanks so much, Jay, for your encouragement. I, we do love the positivity. It means a lot. As a, It's true. We have some... 
Sometimes it's a battlefield out there. Jeff Soul, thanks for your question. Oh, we got that one already. And so let me jump up to the next one. We have uh, Bartos Diagos, appreciate it, said, is religion only in this world for philosophy? Is that for Matt or? I don't sure. even know what it means. Me neither. Is religion only in this world for philosophy? I, for the sake of doing philosophy? I think religion exists in this world because people are flawed thinkers and we'd like to know and understand things and we're terrified of being alone. Um, and so we invent stories. And some people are convinced some of those stories are true. Now, whether or not they're true is independent from what we do with respect to religion because there are plenty of, there are more religions that exist right now than could possibly be true. I think we're all in agreement on that. Uh, they can't all be true. And so in many cases, what, what we're talking about when, when we talk about religion is what human beings do to build communities, to pretend that they have answers to things that they don't have answers to, and to eliminate their fears of being alone. Gotcha. Let's see. Next, Goman, thanks for your question, said to Ben, why did it take God 50 years after AD to have the first outside source or witness, Thallus, who mentioned Christ? Well, <laughs> I would say that this, quite frankly, uh, seems not, this questioner seems not to be aware of the fact that the speed at which the gospel at its core was committed to writing and then was copied and spread throughout the ancient world, leading to a tremendous amount of material coming from geographically stranded areas, all independent of each other. For, for that to have happened as quickly as it did, 50 AD is actually, I think that one of one of the main New Testament scholars today called it a newsflash, comparatively speaking, to the development of uh, of historical writing in other contexts and traditions. So, gotcha. And thank you, Germania, for your question. Said for for Ben, how do you justify God commanding the death of gay people and disobedient children in the Old Testament? Sure. Um, so I think I, 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 is this talking sort of about the Canaanite battles and the killing of all of these people that that were engaged in all these uh, abominations? I think they mean um, capital punishment in both cases. Oh, capital punishment, capital punishment. Well, uh, if we go uh, to a theological question like that, I think it's important to answer it theologically, and there the Bible speaks for itself, uh, laying out its own theological case. And I think there I would just simply point out that Paul the Apostle, who really is the Rosetta Stone for unlocking the meaning of the rest of Scripture, seems to suggest that we need to have a chasm of separation between the two broad Locus is a scripture called law and gospel. There can't be any gospel in law, and there can't be any law in gospel. These two things need to be kept very, very separate from one another, or else we wind up with false theologies, according to Paul the Apostle. So it seems to be the case that, therefore, that we aren't trying to look for uh, uh, some sort of, um, you know, merciful expressions in the way that God penalizes uh, in an eternal sense, human beings uh, who wind up in hell. I think that um, that's something that 
is, is there because the law doesn't contain any grace. But then the opposite turns out to be true, that there's no, there's no law in grace either. There's no requirements when it comes to the grace of God, but it's to be freely received. Gotcha. And thanks for your question. This one comes from The Quiet Gorilla says, let's see, here's your support, MDD. Thanks for your support. And they say, and for Ben, there are millions of books that state that the universe was in fact sneezed out of the great green Arkel seizure. Is that also axiomatic evidence? Well, that would depend. I'm not familiar with the particular case that's being discussed here. I don't recall if this comes from one ancient text or another. I, I'm not an expert at these texts. Gotcha. So let me say that. Um, but uh, if the description entails an infinite regress of events such that the deity in question engages in something that sometimes is called discursive thinking, one thought, then another thought, then another thought, and this goes on for eternity, then that description of God is logically incoherent, and I don't think we're stuck with that one. Gotcha, and thanks for your question. This one comes in from YouTube Punk. says, is Ben familiar with Alan's proof for God? And love you, James. Thanks for that. We love you, too. Uh, they s Alan's proof for God. What? Who is Alan? Never, yeah, I don't know what this is. Uh, oh, I think it might be an inside joke of Alden's. I don't know for sure, but there's just a, it's like nothing at all harmful. It, it like, it's all in good fun and it has nothing to do with it. Uh, Ting Zing, thanks for your question, said, question for <laughs> both, granting all the weird space-time arguments, Kalam, or the uncaused cosmological argument type things, how do people assume consciousness why is this taken seriously in debates? I genuinely feel like I'm missing something. They're objecting consciousness? to assuming consciousness? I don't assume consciousness. Consciousness is the label that we put on specific interactions between what are assumed to be and are somewhat demonstrably thinking agents. Like, I don't just assume that Ben is conscious. Ben demonstrates his consciousness by interacting. And while we can't be absolutely certain about that or anything else, it is, you know, we have the Turing test for a reason. And maybe someday a computer, you know, will will truly be uh, conscious in, in that sense. But um, the the demonstration of consciousness, which I would hope that Ben would agree, is yes. the fact that we are both sitting here having a conversation and that the bulk of the evidence demonstrates that the thinking agents that are capable of having conversations in this way are what we define as conscious agents. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not quite axiomatic. We define what a conscious agent looks and is capable of, and Ben and I are both here demonstrating the capabilities that we have defined as a conscious agent. I don't know what more there is to do or say. Yeah, I, I would only add to that, since the question was directed to both of us, that we have uh, certainly the great the great maxim, I think, therefore I am. If there's some possible universe in which that's not true, then we don't know if we're in that universe. So that's it seems true. that we have to admit that that's true. I mean, it's just it's axiomatically true, Thank as, you. as it was originally argued. Appreciate it. Dave Gar, your question, they said, uh, my takeaway from the debate, human knowledge is extremely fragile especially when we decide what the axioms are. Any thoughts? Appreciate it, Dave Gar. 
Oh, by, by the way, quick quick thing, because uh, Anders pointed it out, the Turing test is not a test for consciousness. That's not what I meant to imply. I meant to imply that the Turing test is something that we try to determine whether or not we're speaking with a consciousness that is uh, that is human-like. That, that's what I meant for, for the Turing test, not that it proves consciousness. Uh, consciousness is, is the definition. we. Anyway, I, I miss, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not multitasking well. So I was and now I'm not. No problem. And then uh, that last one, I am trying to think of uh, nobody. Uh, if you have a response, otherwise, all good. Okay. I, I don't. I, I don't have a response. Otherwise, thanks YouTube Punk for your question. Said, "Damn it, Alden's proof." Oh, because yeah, they did. They they were trying to say what they meant was not Alan's proof of God. They were trying to say Alden's proof of God. Oh, never mind. Okay. So it was just a goofy one. And Grandpa Meat, thanks for your question, said, Ben, what's your best reason to assume God is a good foundation or even a foundation at all? I think it's just exactly what I said, is that it, it, there has to be this capital C cause has to have a consciousness within itself. Otherwise, the cause of the cause of the cause of the other causes is the cause that should be getting the capital C, something outside of that. And so if the reason why the cause, capital C, causes the other causes to be set in motion lies within itself, that implies some sort of a conscious will. Gotcha. It seems to me that that's, that's the, the answer to the question. You By the way, for the person in chat who says that I have previously said atheism is a religion, um, that's not true. If you want to send me evidence that I've said that, I will happily correct it because Every time I've ever been asked or had any, I've never thought atheism is a religion. I don't think it qualifies as a religion. I think the, the accusation that atheism is a religion is monumentally stupid in the sense that uh, it, it would be it would be more more foundational to say that having a preference for a football team is closer to religion than atheism. Atheism has no tenets, no dogma, no hierarchy, no instruction. It is not even necessarily a positive belief. There's no practices or anything else at no point would I ever defend the notion that atheism is a religion. And if somebody thinks they've heard me say that, please send me proof. But I, I probably won't correct it after you send it, other than to say, I don't recall ever saying such thing. If I did, I misspoke. If I didn't, you misheard. But it doesn't matter because atheism isn't a religion. Gotcha. And thank you for this one. This one comes in from Bartos Diagos said, what religious people need to understand is that God exists in your head, created by your brain. After that, you can live your life however you want. Ben, are you in agreement? <laughs> I'm not well, even sure I understood that one. Yes. Uh, well, <laughs> well, this is interesting. I mean, is there good evidence for the existence of God? If God is just an idea in your head, just think of him and he exists. I just, I don't know what else to say. I mean, is it, was that for me or was it for Matt? I I think it was definitely for you. I don't even know if I'm answering the question. I don't even know if that's a question. I'm sorry that I, I, I apologize to the uh, to the questioner for, for failing to understand the point. I'm... No problem. And Harry Potter 9890 says, might be off topic, but I'll ask anyway. Oh, let me see here. Okay, say, say, Matt and Ben, are you familiar with Alan Watts? And if so, what do you think about his ideas? 
I don't have I don't have a whole lot of uh, thoughts on Alan Watts, so I don't have anything particular. To, I would want to actually review stuff so that I'm more familiar, more ready. Um, I'm not a big fan or follower of Alan Watts, so I, I wouldn't want to misrepresent him or say what I agree with or not. You bet. How about I, you I too would I I too would decline to to comment as well. It also has nothing to do with this debate. Gotcha. And Pilgrim, thanks for your question, said, don't worry, we don't have too many more. Thank you guys so much. I hope you had a big dinner. We're gonna, I'm going to try to move fast. Said, <laughs> I didn't, actually, but I'll, I'll make it. Thank you for your patience. Pilgrim said, can Ben demonstrate how God is self-evident? The idea is controversial and not consensual, so how does this transfer into axiomatic, axiomatic evidence for God? Well, I, I think it's important that we try to, in some way, disambiguate what we mean by... Uh, by axiom, axiomatic demonstrations versus presuppositions, since these are two characteristically different versions of foundationalism, which have historically been taken up. So if we're to try to sort of disambiguate these two things, a presupposition is just something which is assumed, while an axiom is a self-evident irreducible prime. It's something which we were just really never justified in questioning like A plus B is equal to B plus A. What is the rational basis for questioning that? And so essentially the claim here is, is that axiomatic versions of foundationalism are, are self-evidently true, while presuppositions are things that we um, just assume to be true without there being a self-evincing quality to it. So I don't know if that helps at all. but I, I don't know that it does because that's not remotely my understanding of axiom and don't get me wrong i'm happy to go through and look up uh under whatever philosophical dictionaries you want but if you just go to wikipedia to start with it specifically points out that an axiom postulate or assumption is a statement that is taken to be true to serve as a premise or starting point for further reasoning and argument the fact that we're taking something as true is not the same as it is true and if you have something that is unfalsifiable i don't know how you can possibly ever hope to, 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 to show that it's true. I don't know how there can be a demonstration of the truth, um, but the, in, in like axioms in mathematics are things that we assume, what we're assuming is not X is true, but we're assuming it is universally true, that there is a uniformity and that there's no, no way and no circumstances ever where mathematics is denied or, or, or is wrong. So, I mean, granted, that's, well, that's I think that leads to some immediate problems. That leads to immediate. If we say that, that Wikipedia corrected, if we say that there's something out, there's a possibility that outside of the universe, the axioms of mathematics don't apply because we don't know they're just coherent in this universe. Then how do we know that we're not living in that universe? In which case, it's not true. I just as soon as we start talking me, about this universe and suggesting that there are others, well, now we're 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 way out there because. How would you demonstrate that there's another universe in anything other than an abstract sense of saying as a thought experiment, you know, this is where we get into problems with modal logic and, and where I have issues with S5. But if we're if we're generally looking at this and saying, ah, in all possible worlds or necessary in these worlds, we've departed from what we're actually talking about in this universe where you need to present evidence for a proposition. On 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 an, uh, uh, something that exists empirically, not as an abstraction. The thing that we accept is axiomatic. Um, the things that we accept as presuppositions, like identity, non-contradiction, excluded middle, and the basis uh, and the uniformity of the universe. Mm -hmm. Those things that we take, or mm -hmm. we, we take as a matter of necessity because we can't demonstrate them. It would be a mistake to also say that the foundation for this, or my proposed foundation for this, 
is something that is axiomatic and therefore true, because axiomatic is not true. Give you a super short rebuttal. It's axiomatically true that this, huh? Super short rebuttal. Sorry, it is, okay. Go to the next one. Yeah, it is axiomatically true that this half of the rectangle is smaller than this one. That's self-evidently true. That's essentially what we're talking about. Gotcha. But anyways, uh, go on. Yeah. This one, thanks so much for your question. This comes in from, let me know if I mispronounce this friend, Angfizer says, if the resurrection was, quote, good evidence, and God used his power to resurrect Jesus, how many watts did it take have a precedent in physics to support this? Oh, my goodness. Do I? Do we have to answer this question? <laughs> no. Next up, thank you for your, let's see, Pilgrim... I think we we got that one. Matt Wilson, thanks for your question, said, Ben, geometry guy here, because nothing changes when you assume God or no God, i.e. not observable. It can not be an axiom. If you say something is an axiom, you can prove it must be an axiom. And I would say that we don't need operational instances in the physical world of uh mathematics for to prove that mathematics is true i don't think we need that we can deal wholly in the theoretical entities and know that it's the case uh, i just don't see why there's any reason to suppose that that would be true gotcha and thanks for your question the uncle that doesn't i don't know what that means but they say i may have missed it but assuming the god in this discussion is the christian god what's the argument accounting for the inaccuracies in the bible So I'm assuming this is for me. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I don't think it's, it would be up to me to defend why there are inaccuracies in the Bible. No, no. Um, so Bible, uh, quote unquote, inaccuracies, I think that we would need to deal with each of these inaccuracies on a case-by-case -case basis in order for me to come into agreement that they are inaccuracies. As I've studied the scriptures, I don't find a lot of good grounds to suppose that this is an inaccuracy or that is an inaccuracy. They seem to be fairly accurate. Um, I suppose it depends upon what body of evidence you've encountered that says that this thing is inaccurate. Uh, we can certainly talk about what that evidence is, but so well, the order of events in Genesis one aren't accurate. I mean, the, the order of events in Genesis one aren't accurate according to the findings of science. I want to give oh, I okay. can give Ben a so this chance sort of, sort of alleged science. Okay, the alleged science the problem. One. Oh, okay. Well, right. if you if you want to give a, I don't want to gang up on you because I know the super chat was trying to challenge you. Um, I, if you want to give a quick rejoinder, and then mm -hmm. we have to go to the next one. Sure. You know, I think I would say that. Um, you know, there I, I, there have been theologians that have attempted to give accounts or readings of the Book of Genesis such that it does cohere with the order of events as described in the book of Genesis. You can see uh, Dr. Hugh Ross has done a lot of interesting work in this area. There are others who have done interesting work in this area as well. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, this, this would essentially go a little bit deeper into uh, my Christianity than the debate seemed to be demanding of me in my preparation for it. So uh, if if pressed by the moderator beyond that point, I'll I'll try to give the best I can at the moment. No problem. Um, I you, oh sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh no, that's that's fine. It could please continue. 
Oh, uh, if so you want to. Luminiferous Ethan, thanks for your question, said, Great discussion, even if the topic didn't get addressed, seems to be a disagreement on what constitutes evidence, which is a discussion in itself. Uh, Kudos to both participants. Yes. Stay safe, everyone. Well, that was nice. And yes, and same to the same to the commenter. Thanks. Yeah, please stay, stay safe. safe. Thanks, Johnny Moe, for your question. Says, if it's not too late for this question, Matt, if you recall, what was your number one argument for God when you were a believer in the past? Um, so while I believed from the time I walked down the aisle at five all the way up until I was around 30-ish or something like that, um, I don't know that I had particularly good arguments, and I don't know that I engaged that much. Mainly my any witnessing that I did to other people wasn't about evidence or argument. My job was to let the Holy Spirit work through me to convict them of the truth that they needed Jesus and were dead and destined for an eternity, either in hell or annihilation. I'm not completely sure which one I believed at various times. Um, without it, it wasn't a matter of evidence. It was, here's what the Bible says. You are either in accordance with this, which you won't be, or you're not. And if you're not, you need Jesus. And that's what the book says. And so I didn't have an argument. And by the way, I'm not convinced anybody else does either. Saying it's axiomatic isn't evidence. It's not, and it's not an argument. Saying that the, you know, the first cause argument or cosmological argument or any, they don't do what people think they do. And that's one of the reasons why I'm much happier sitting down. Well, I'm, I'm happy to sit down with someone who just says, I don't have any way to demonstrate the truth of this. I am just convicted and convinced. Okay, cool. But now we're talking about revelation is necessarily first person and to everybody else it's hearsay. And so for the people who are advocating for that, they're basically saying they have special access to information. God will either reveal himself to me or he won't. It's not their problem. And all they want to do is make sure that I've heard about Jesus. Well, congrats. I've heard, I've taught it. I've preached it. Well, I've, whatever uh, yeah thanks so much the decepticons forever for your question said uh it's baffling that a fellow two thousand years removed from any eyewitnesses or from any witnesses to all this stuff that's based on retellings of older myths thinks he can win a debate i think they're a critic of you ben you don't have to respond mm -hmm. if you don't want to not very not an argument per se tim Pryor, sure if you want you can respond though yeah, I I think it would just take, you know, we've we've probably gotten through a lot of evidence if it relates to the meat of our discussion, which is this difference in what we call good evidence or strong evidence. Then let's talk about that. But uh, this would really take a lot to walk out. Gotcha. Uh, and want to say, folks, right please now. help me out. I, I know that you may have questions, so want to just ask if you could maybe save them for next time. We, we're almost to the end, and so um, it's really hard thing. for us to read any more than what we've got in front of me. Tim Pryor, thanks for your question, said, I find it ironic that in the Bible you hear about all the messed up uh, stuff that God has done, but you don't hear too much about the bad things the devil has done, but God is still all great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's a question, but I would encourage, I would love to encourage the commenter, commentator at this point to really read the Bible with an open mind and ask as you open your Bible for the Holy Spirit to speak to you, because perhaps you'd come to a different conclusion as you do. Thanks. Double A for your question said, Matt, have you considered, oh, that's right. That's a question I can't read. YouTube's 
uh, kind of looking out for that word in there. So um, let me know. Is it about the Backstreet Boys reunion tour? (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) But uh, double A, if you email me at moderndaydebate at gmail, I can help you out with that. It'll give you a refund. Uh, Eng Pfizer, thanks for your question, said, Hey, Ben, does the virgin birth make abstinence only 99.9% effective against unplanned pregnancy? If it happened, how can you think otherwise? <laughs> I think that it, what it shows is, is that apart from a miracle, uh, a woman is not getting pregnant. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's that's thanks. what I'd say to that. You thanks know. so much. And Sergio Cedron thanks, said, Ben, if you, if you consider the evidence you have is sufficient to believe, how do you reconcile the atrocities endorsed by God, such as murder, slavery, etc.? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think that there are cases in which God calls for anyone to be murdered. Uh, there are times when there are... Like the are, Malachites? Yeah, I don't think that these are cases of a call to commit murder. You don't think, think telling think somebody to go and slaughter every male and every woman who's had sex with a male and then to keep well, the young virgin all, women for themselves, you don't think that's an instruction to first murder? Of, first of all, I don't think that these are cases of anything but literary ancient near eastern hyperbole that's what they are because uh, i look at the case of the other commandments if we're talking about literally fulfilling all of the commandments of god one of the commandments of god was to drive them out of the land well you can't kill them all and drive them all at the same time one of the two things has to happen jesus said that if a man commits lust he should pluck out his eye well, I don't see too many Christians walking around with a plucked out eye. So obviously, that just the Bible that presupposes just means they're not, a they're not following. Reader. That just means they're not following the instruction. That's not surprising. You and I both, even oh, even if, let me put my now. Christian, <laughs> let me put my Christian hat back on. There's plenty of cafeteria I Christians. There were plenty of people sitting in the pews next to us that we all knew weren't true Christians. But I don't know how you can get to hyperbole when this is the the annals <laughs> of how of how the Jews conquered. Name one. Name one this, historical incidents of. The Jews singularly targeting babies, for example. I don't see that anywhere in any of the narratives. In I didn't which it shows say that. that they militarily targeted I, them. I didn't say well, that. Then all well, you have are statements that are hyperbole. I, all I, you anyway, have are things where if you let me fit. No, no, no. That's, you think it's hyperbole. I do. I do. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. In the okay, same way so, that I believe that we shouldn't. We, so you rights. don't think I that God actually? You don't think that God this. actually commanded them we to do. kill the Amalekites? We do have to go. Pretty quick here to the next question. Uh, this one's wow. How many Christians? How many Christians in the chat think that God's instruction to kill the Amalekites was high, was hyperbole? I'll give the, the, literally the first person I sat down with who says this is hyperbole. Well, I'm I'm sorry that that's the case. Um, what I would just simply just say in response to that, and then kick it back over to James, is is that if we're supposed to literally follow every single commandment of the Bible to the sort of some sort of a wooden literalism, then you can't drive people out that you're killing. I think You've it's funny that them, not must, drive them out. We, we do have to. I hate okay. to do this, guys. So I, anyway, so we much. finally got to something that I think is just bizarre. Like, <laughs> hey, by the way, is Exodus 21 that permits you owning must, other people's sorry, property guys, and beating them? Is that hyperbole, these, too? We're bringing up stuff that's not in the Q&A. So we do have to kind of keep moving. I, I hate okay. to do that. But I'm okay. sorry. Next, James W., thanks for your question. I apologize. Let's see. If you want to answer that last question, Ben, you can in the shortest time possible. It's okay. And then James W., thanks for your question, said, just for uh, Modern Day Debate's soy fund. (laughs) Thank you for that. Audi S513 says, I love you, Matt. 
Zephaniah Greenwell says, thank you for the debate. I found it very enjoyable. We, we really appreciate that. Thanks for your kindness. want to remind you folks, our guests are linked in the description. So if you want to hear more from them, you can by clicking on those links. That's it for our questions. Thanks, a huge thanks. Huge thanks to our guests who have stuck with us as this is a, a long one. And so they have uh, stuck around for your questions. And so we really <laughs> do thank them for their time and their, their commitment and, and going the extra mile for us. So thank you both, Ben and Matt. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, so uh, thank you guys, though. We really appreciate you. Well, one of these days, maybe we can have a follow-up discussion of which parts of the Bible are hyperbole and how can you tell? Because I would say that a resurrection <laughs> is far more likely to be hyperbolic than, hey, go kill all these people, or hey, you can own slaves. But I, then I'm not cherry-picking. I'm throwing it all out. But Juicy, we may have that debate someday. Who knows? So want to say thanks, everybody. Yes, for maybe, maybe perhaps. Appreciate you hanging out with us, folks. And we will be back. That's right. So tomorrow morning, we haven't had a morning debate in a long time. Dr. Michael Brown will be taking on Dr. Alex Malpass. So that will be an epic one. And that's on the problem of suffering. So that should be juicy. And then, you guys, I don't know if you're going to believe it, but I'm not making this up for real. You will see at the bottom right of your screen, Aaron Raw has tentatively agreed to debate Nathan Thompson. So that should be an epic one next month. We hope to see you for that one. So hit that subscribe button if you want a reminder, if you haven't already. And so with that, thanks so much for hanging out with us, folks. Keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable. We hope you have a great rest of your night. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.